You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. おもしろい ザマだ。だから言わねえこっちゃねえ。6人 あんな理由で思ったやつはこの近くにはおめえしかいねえ。それでもしかするとあの6人叩っ殺したのはおめえじゃねえかと思ってね。Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Eric Cohen. Konnichiwa. Also back in the booth is Ms. Jordan Blossie. We'll need two hosts. Maybe three. This week we're discussing Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo. Released in 1961, the film was an international sensation and jettisoned star Toshiro Mifune into the pantheon of cinematic badasses. It's the story of merchants who manipulate two factions of gangsters in a small town. Our main character, a man with no name, comes to town and, after sizing things up, decides that he'll make a bit of money by playing both sides against one another. Along the way, we discover that perhaps he's not the unscrupulous, amoral bastard he pretends to be. Now, we're going to be getting to spoilers for a raft of films tonight. So if you've never seen a movie where a guy comes to town and there's two factions and it kind of sets them against each other, then maybe you should go watch that. Cause there's a lot of those films. I discovered while we were doing the research, there's a lot of those films. I didn't watch them all. Would you say this is like the most remade concept outside of Shakespeare? Yeah. Or something that's not like a universal monster kind of thing, like Frankenstein or Dracula, right? I'm surprised that Shakespeare didn't have this in his in his repertoire. 
So, Eric, I'm curious, when was the first time you saw Yojimbo, and what did you think? The first time I saw it, I was in college, and it was on my radar. I had I had actually seen A Fistful of Dollars, its remake first, and I heard that, you know, it was a remake of this Kurosawa film. And at that point, I was be- slowly becoming a Kurosawa fan. I'd already seen uh, Seven Samurai and Hidden Fortress and Ran. So I was, I was very excited to see Yojimbo because uh, I heard so much about it, and I was curious to see how F- Fistful of Dollars was, was based off of it. And, uh, yeah, I saw it in a local sort of art house cinema in upstate New York, and it blew me away. It's, to this day, one of my favorite movies of all time. How about you, Jordan? I saw Yojimbo around the same time I saw Wanda. Um, as I mentioned in the Wanda podcast, I saw a bunch of movies around the same time, and I saw both of those movies in the summer of 2015. Um, I knew that Yojimbo was the original Fistful of Dollars, and that was really all I knew about it. I had already seen uh, Kurosawa's uh, Macbeth, Macbeth adaptation, Throne of Blood, and I can't remember if I saw Seven Samurai before or after Yojimbo. But the first thing that struck me about Yojimbo was the opening sequence. It just completely blew me away. I loved that score. I loved the editing. I had never really seen anything like that of its time, both in American cinema or international. So I knew I was going to be watching something really special as I went on, and it didn't disappoint. So I am quite the poser. Uh, I had never seen a Kurosawa film before I saw Yojimbo. I had not seen any Sergio Leone before I saw Yojimbo. I was at college. I was 20 years old. I'm living in this house with all these other guys. And one of them comes in and he goes, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to Top of the Park. It's this thing that happens in Ann Arbor every year where they do like a kind of a little festival at the top of a parking lot. I'm going to go to Top of the Park and I'm going to see this movie. And it's got this crazy name. It's called Yo Jimbo. And I was like, Yo Jimbo, that sounds kind of funny. And he's like, oh, yeah, it's a it's a samurai movie. And I'm like, OK, sure. Yeah, I'll go see Yo Jimbo. That's got such a funny name, right? No, Jimbo! And I go over there with him and a bunch of other guys, and we ate this movie up with a spoon. I had never seen anything like this before and had no idea. Like, when I hear, like, samurai movies, I, for whatever reason, when I'm 20 years old, I'm thinking, like, I, I guess I was thinking of James Clavell's adaptation, the adaptation of his book, uh, Shogun, right? So I'm thinking Toshiro Mifune in that kind of role where you never really know what's going on, this kind of like unscrupulous Japanese character. And then the movie starts and you get that score and you get this guy coming in and rolling his shoulders and scratching at his head like he's a mangy dog, throwing this stick up in the air to see which way the wind's going to take him. And then we begin our adventure, and that began my love affair with Akira Kurosawa. Not literally, the man and I never met, but that began me loving Kurosawa. And I was very fortunate because I got to see those movies that you guys mentioned, Throne of Blood, Ron, Seven Samurai, on the big screen at college after that, because luckily U of M had a great Japanese studies program, and I was able to just absorb all of that stuff and it was wonderful. And then years later, I finally caught up with the, the Spaghetti Westerns. And that, again, just blew the top off of my head. So what a great way to see this kind of on a lark and have my eyes just opened up wide. 
I love this whole idea of him letting fate decide where he goes, throwing that stick up and it goes, it points to this town and the way that we're introduced to him and the way that we're introduced to the world that he's in and that he doesn't immediately go into town that there's that kind of precursor. I mean, this does feel very much like a play in some aspects. He comes in and he stops for some water and he gets to see this little scene happen between a mom, a dad and their son. And we kind of get introduced to so many of the ideas that we're going to have inside of this film just in that one little scene. Yeah, there's that great moment afterwards where uh, he's, he walks into the town and a dog shows up with a hand in its mouth. That's just awesome. I love the uh, score that plays when the dog is walking off with the hand in his mouth. I read that the composer, um, what was his name, Asari Sato, uh, he was inspired by uh, Harry Mancini, who did the score for movies like Breakfast at Tiffany's. They often had like, these lighthearted, comical um I don't want to like maybe undertones I want to say to them. And I think that really adds to this movie. And there's a lot of really funny moments in this movie. It's like, I don't think I noticed that the first time I watched it, but the more subsequent viewings, it, it was like, there's some really funny moments in it. I, li- I love that you brought up the score because it really sets the tone for the rest of the movie. Uh, you get the idea right off the bat that this is some sort of like dark comedy. Yeah. And you get those great, the woodblock noises. I love the woodblocks used in the score. And then it's basically, it's, it's your Jimbo's theme, you know, and I love that it comes up when he's on the move and the way that the score plays with him and plays with Mifune and the way that it will either follow his footsteps sometimes or will lead him into situations. It's really nice. And there's like a couple themes that go through here. Yojimbo's theme itself, the theme for the geishas, there's a couple other musical motifs that run through this. And that opening score, it's kind of like, you know, when you go to see a play or a musical, it gives you a lot of those themes right up front and really prepares you for what you're about to see. Now, are we, are we going to call Toshiro Mifune's character Yojimbo or Sanjuro? I always call him Yojimbo. Yojimbo! Because just just for our you know listeners out there, Yojimbo means bodyguard in Japanese. I think it's a reference to you know him trying to hire himself out as a bodyguard to either faction. But he calls himself Sanjiro. But it's very complicated and gets lost in translation because it's a reference to a field of flowers he sees outside a window and something to do with the age. I, I I'm still not clear what it means, but something to do with 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 the age of the flowers and how he ties that into his own age. Basically, he makes up the name when he's asked when he's asked to identify himself to a character. I, I don't like the Family Guy as a rule, but there is one where they ask Peter Griffin what his name is, and he's looking around the room doing that whole trope where you look around and you see things and make up the fake name. And I can't remember how he does Peter, but at one point a Griffin flies through the room and he's. What's your name? Uh, my my name. Uh, 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 P. Uh, uh, uh. Here, uh, uh, Griffin. Yeah, yeah, Peter Griffin. Oh, crap. To your point, we should call him Sanjuro because that's kind of how he refers to himself in the movie. That's how he introduces himself when they ask him point blank what his name is in both this and in the sequel, Sanjuro. But then as the movies progress and there's two other films, 
Well, he doesn't necessarily introduce himself as Yojimbo or Sanjiro in the uh, incident at Blood Pass, but when they have him meeting Zatoichi, it's Yojimbo meets Zatoichi. It's not Sanjiro meets Zatoichi. So I guess we should call him Sanjiro, but I tend to just call him Yojimbo. And also, it's a lot more fun to say. Yo, Jimbo! It's your show, man. It rolls by any other name. <laughs> it's your show. <laughs> I, I'm fine. I'm fine. If you guys refer to him as Sanjiro, I'll know who you're talking about. Hopefully the listeners can keep up. Or a lot of times we're going to call him Toshiro Mifune. So just because he became known for that character, there's some aspects of him that are in other characters that he had done, but nothing he had not done anything quite like this before. This is not the wild dog that he was in Rashomon or the crazy guy that he was in Seven Samurai. This isn't the, you know, stayed doctor that he was in Redbeard. This is nothing that he had quite done to this point or after this. He, this was a very, uh, th- this character, he owned this character when he did this. Oh, it's literally a star-making performance. Uh, as they said, um, behind the scenes, uh, like the whole dynamic change between Kurosawa and Mifune, in part because of this movie, all of a sudden, Mifune was this star, he was this myth, and then, like, all of a sudden, um, Akira Kurosawa doesn't really have the upper hand after Yojimbo, and as, as you read behind the scenes, they had a rift after uh, Redbeard, in part because... Um, he couldn't shave his beard as they were making the movie, and uh, Mifune couldn't um, take any other work, and that was costing his own production company some money. So that was a big part in their rift. But uh, yes, I mean, it, it's a total game changer. I, I think samurai movies, uh, I, if I read or heard correctly, samurai movies were kind of like comic book movies before the whole Marvel boom. They weren't taken as seriously. But Kurosawa kind of elevated it to this new level, and Yojimbo and Seven Samurai were two of those movies that did that. Yeah, what I love about Yojimbo is it's sort of this juxtaposition of, of plot structure. It's, 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 it's like pure simplicity. It's brilliant in its simplicity in terms of the goal of the hero and how it all plays out. But it's juxtaposed with this visual complexity, like the, t- the design of the town, the architecture. The choice of of costume, you know, everything about this is so rich in detail. It's this I, I see this film like once every year, and I had no problem revisiting it, you know, preparing for this 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 uh, podcast and everything because I love the film. And every time I see it, I notice something different. It, it, it's it's just so visually rich, um, and and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here, but the remakes don't quite capture the details, not only within the town, because the town itself is like a character, but how that kind of informs everything that's going on um, in the bulk of this film. It's really extraordinary. And getting back to Mifune, he's he's amazing in this. He not only has like amazing charisma and all that stuff, but he's funny. He does all these weird sort of character tics, like the way that he loves to like place his hands within his kimono, you know, you know, without putting him through the sleeves and this the weird way that he just kind of like, you know, moves his shoulders, you know, and kind of like scratches his beard every now and then. It's just these wonderful little things you, you knew he came up with that weren't actually scripted. Well, and Jordan, you mentioned the dog with the hand, and there are so many times where they refer to Yojimbo as a dog, and 
I mean, he, he practically has fleas in this movie. I mean, they, they talk in the beginning, you know, hungry dogs come running when they smell blood or when he goes up to the group of baddies that he meets in town and they're just like, you know, oh, yeah, even dogs can pass this way. And it's just like the all of these kind of animal references and then the animal references get even thicker when we meet one of the two groups of bad guys and they're all named after Zodiac signs or multiple Zodiac signs in the case of one of them who the mom started birth in one year and then finish in the other so his name is kind of a conglomeration of two animals so we have the all of these animal themes that run through it which is really nice and then the the whole idea of what you're talking about eric with the the richness of this and the the complexity of the set i mean because this is all it's a set but it's it's out in the open. So it's, it's, you know, we get to see the sky so much and we get to see the roofs and we get to see things from up top and from way down low. And it's really nice that we do explore the space so much. This is, this is a Western type town where we've got this basically one main street, but we get to know almost every nook and cranny of that street. That scene where uh, Yojimbo, 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 is in the uh, little restaurant cafe place with with the uh, bar owner, and that bar owner is explaining to him the whole layout of the town, who is in charge of what, is a brilliant exercise in in good exposition. As a, there's bad exposition when you're told too much and not shown enough. Here you're told just enough, but you're shown everything. And the geography of where he opens up one window and he shows him one person and opens up the other window and there's the other person. And within that moment, you get everything. And it's all set up. And it's just brilliantly set up for the audience. It's like a play within a play or a movie within a movie, the way that he lifts the shutters on the side and we have this widescreen vista inside of our widescreen vista. So we, he's there narrating this stuff and then opens up the window and then, yeah, we get to see these things happen. And that action is framed by Mufuni on one side and the and the uh, the barkeep on the other side, and then he'll move and go and over here and then do the same kind of thing and talk about these people that we're about to see in this, and that happens constantly through this where we're looking out of these windows and or the walls I suppose and seeing how things are going and just space itself is so important and the way that they play with framing I mean that's the thing I've always loved about Kurosawa is his use of framing and it's so so beautiful I mean if you you just turn off the sound and watch Seven Samurai and watch the way that the bodies are positioned or the I you know the the things inside of the screen with the mise en scene it's always top notch and he never fails to amaze me with some of the frames that he does kazuo mayagawa i think his name was was his go-to cinematographer but he had an assistant he had a second cameraman who he relied on a lot because the second cameraman was there to do a lot of uh, uh telephoto lens shooting so a lot of stuff was shot from afar, and Kusawa was so impressed with the images he was capturing off that lens when they were in the uh, when they were editing the film. A good bulk of what you see in that film were shot through the second uh, camera guy's uh, camera through the telephoto lens, 
And it's something you don't really notice unless someone points it out to you. But it's pretty amazing where you have like a lot of these like wonderful like tight shots. But because they're a shot from from like a, a great distance, you have this interesting sort of depth of field that you wouldn't have if you'd had it more close up with a wide angle lens. And there's, especially when it comes to scenes where like visually it's trying to map out the geography like that, that whole moment when um, you have the two factions that are about to go to war at the beginning of the film and Yojimbo's up there in the tower you see the camera lens, you see the frame is on one group of people, and then it quickly pans up to Mifuni, where you see his expression and slyly smiling while he's watching the whole thing. It's amazing what this camera is able to capture, considering that he had all these things going on at the same time. And I don't want to get too nerdy, but one of those great things that actually going to film school and seeing like this is what a wide angle lens does this is what a telephoto lens does this is a dolly versus a zoom this is a tracking shot this is a this what you're saying for folks who may not be aware is a telephoto lens the way that they shoot this or a long lens some might say it actually compresses the space so things that are farther apart than they are in real life are compressed so things that might be six feet apart look like they're three feet apart so that helps when it comes to almost increasing the danger of this and making the spaces a little bit tighter when they get in on this but what it really helps do is it makes mifune's actions so much quicker when he whips that sword out he moves so fast and some of that is him a lot of that is him but some of that is actually the lens itself really helps with that action and it just makes things cook really hot this is a very well choreographed movie one of the issues i had with the fistful of dollars i i know i'm getting a little ahead of myself but um the comparison between the scene uh, when Bumfuni kills the six guys versus when Eastwood kills the six guys in a fistful of dollars, it's not nearly as fun to watch that with guns as that is with sword. When I'm watching this the very first time, I laughed when I saw the dog with the hand in his mouth. And I laughed at a couple other things, chuckled a little bit more, but I still didn't have a bead on this movie. Not until he goes up. He's what he's doing in the narrative is he's he's found out from the guy who runs the bar or the the restaurant there's these two factions that are in town and they're fighting one another but they're kind of at a temporary peace right now and he figures out oh I could make a lot of money if I pit these guys against each other I could work for one and then I could go to the other and work for them and then I could go back and back and back and continue to make more money it really reminds me a lot Eric of what we saw in the Maltese Falcon the way that Sam Spade is constantly taking money from all of these different people it doesn't matter if it's Joel Cairo or Miss Wonderly he's going to get money from each one of them and so this is that same kind of idea of he's going to play these sides against one another and just continue to make money so in order to do that in order to impress one of the gangs he goes to the second gang who had told him that even dogs can cross the road and he backed off and they're laughing at him so he goes up to them again and this is where I lost my shit is when they say, yeah, try to kill us. And he goes, okay, but it'll hurt. Well, that's one of the running gags throughout the film is that he's constantly taking money, but he's constantly giving the money back or losing it somehow, which is also brilliant. Jordan was mentioning referring to Fistful of Dollars again, getting ahead of ourselves. 
But one of the things that kind of annoyed me about Fistful that didn't before that I noticed after rewatching Yojimbo and then rewatching Fistful of Dollars is that there were moments there where he had the opportunity to get his money back, where he killed a person, he could just grab their money. But in Yojimbo, and, and, and we're, again, we're gonna, I'm gonna get into this in more detail later on, the problem with the remakes versus the original. The, Yojimbo works because it is absolutely specific to that period that it's set in. The costuming, the kind of characters they are. The island nation of Japan was ruled by a form of government known as the shogunate multiple times throughout its history. The last shogunate, the Tokugawa shogunate, ruled Japan from 1600 to 1868, before it was overthrown by the Empire of Japan. The shogunate system created a social structure in Japan roughly similar to that of medieval Europe, and was an important factor in shaping Japanese culture and history. Yeah, they just experienced a civil war around the same time we experienced our civil war. So this takes place in like the mid to late 1800s, hence the appearance of the gun later on in the film. But you get the sense that because of it's so specific and it's so ingrained to what the story is about, everything makes logical sense. You know, you don't come out of it thinking, okay, yeah, now I understand why, you know, he doesn't have his money or I understand this, I understand that. Whereas the consequent remakes, you're like, Okay, why did he ask the guy to stop so he could look at the house burning down when the guy, when the gangsters in front of it could hear the car and then come chasing after him? That doesn't seem smart. It just doesn't work in, in another peri- you know, period context. It's just, it, Yojimbo is just absolutely perfect in that way. The one thing that I saw when I was watching Yojimbo was how much of a fan of this movie George Lucas was. Like when Yojimbo goes up to that group of thugs and they start to talk to him and he's just like, oh, what pretty faces. And they all start like talking about how tough they are. If they had a bad translation, the one guy almost says, You just watch yourself. We're wanted men. I have the death sentence on 12 systems. I'll be careful. You'll be dead. And then Yojimbo goes and cuts off one of the guys' arms, and I'm just like, oh, it's Walrus Man. Okay. You could tell um, the characterization of Han Solo, you could make a, you could trace it back to the characterization of Sanjuro or Yojimbo in this movie. It's that deadpan snark. Uh, it's just that aloof manner. I'm going to get some money out of this. Pretending that he wants money, but he does have that center to him and i like that it takes a long time for us to get to that center you know we don't get that right off the bat we don't get the you know like we get some of the the what i'm going to call throughout this podcast the holy family but we don't get that just handed to us and thank god the kid is not as annoying as he is in fistful of dollars it's interesting how yojimbo is a kind of movie it's so iconic that it incepted like a whole pop cultural treasure of, of, of product inspired from it, right? From comic books, TV episodes, to cartoons, to movies, you know, what have you, maybe even literature. But what's really interesting about Yojimbo, it might be one of the first, if not the first, samurai movie that took its inspiration directly from American Westerns, even more so than, say, uh, Seven Samurai. There was like a lot of intentional placement of cameras and, and standoffs. There are like, you know, duels you would see in a Western. We all know that Kurosawa was a big uh, John Ford fan. I understand that he acted a lot like John Ford. When we talked about uh, the man who shot Liberty Valance, to hear, 
I don't want to say horror stories, but just the way that he would treat members of the crew and just ride them all the time and just be kind of like this little dictator. That kind of sounds like how Kurosawa ran his crew. He seems like a very intense guy. He did have that reputation, but he also had a reputation for being very hands-on. Like, he wasn't a guy just sat in a director chair and, and gave orders and, you know, did his thing, you know, and let everyone else do everything else. He he would, like, if they were, like, cleaning up after a shoot, he would grab a mop and help clean up, you know, and stuff like that. He was a guy who absolutely loved every aspect of making a film and wanted to be involved. And before he was a director, he worked on every aspect of becoming a film. He was kind of like a CEO, like he knew his whole the whole business, like, top to bottom. And you see this in behind the scenes too. A movie I watched in part to prepare for this ran. He uh, rehearsed the scenes over and over with um, Tatsuya Nakade and the other actors to make sure to get it just right uh, before they were filming. So he was very immersive in his films, very interactive. Most uh, directors, like another a good example is Woody Allen. He's kind of hands off with his actors, or so I heard. But that true? depends on the actor i guess and what age they are if they're under 18 then he's very hands-on he's very vague at best he gives them camera directions but you don't, don't get that with kurosawa like there's interviews with actors who worked with uh, woody allen who said like yeah i kind of just had to come up with whatever yeah getting back to the idea of this being western like i said this is all taking place on this one, you know, it's that iconic set that we know from all of these Westerns, you know, the stranger riding into town. In this case, he's walking, riding into town. And there's the one long main street where we have the two businesses or two sets of businesses on either side. And in this case, on one side, we've got the bar bartender and the coffin maker, who's also a very important character. On the other side, we've got this, I guess he's the the mayor, this kind of crazy guy who comes out. And I love the way that he acts, the way that he kind of minces around and he'll like bang on these wooden blocks, which again are kind of picked up by Sato in the score and will announce, you know, 12 o'clock and all is well, even though nothing is right in the town. He is quite a character. So we've got this dichotomy between the two sides of the street and then also the two ends of the street, because the thing that, we you know we've alluded a lot to the remakes the thing that all of the remakes seem to lose is that not only do we have two gangs who are fighting one another but there are people behind the gangs the guys behind the guys this is the guy behind the guy behind the guy so really what's happening in this film that doesn't necessarily happen in the other films is there's the two merchants and this whole thing really is their battle between the silk merchant and the sake merchant and they have employed these thugs to kind of be their front and the thugs are the ones that go out they're the soldiers that are kind of fighting with each other though they're very hesitant to fight because they're they're going to get killed but they're the the militia for these guys and i don't think any of the other remakes really have that level to it they will have the gangsters be the people that are fighting each other rather than the two merchants behind the scenes the remakes either oversimplify it for the sake of budgetary reasons or they overcomplicate it again it comes down to context it's one thing that you have a situation that's in this like you know late 1800s japan 
with 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 roaming ronins and you know masterless samurais whatever and and like there's no real government in place because of the civil war that just happened there's another thing setting it in you know prohibition era or something like that where you do it with gangsters in the middle of like this sort of midwest town and you wonder well, what are they doing in this midwestern town wouldn't they rather be in chicago or new york you know that kind of thing Part of it is, 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 as Jordan said, you know, the, the remakes, it comes down to laziness of writers, but also I, I do have the firm belief that, that Yojimbo works because it's like all these, these, uh, things going on that are just perfect for the story, the way it's being presented in terms of the action, what happens in the script, the period, everything just, just makes it ripe. So it makes sense that, you know, civility has broken down. So the people in power are people with the money, and they're going to hire like multitudes of people to protect them. Right. It's not just the gangs themselves that are just like, we rule this town. It's like, no, they were very specifically brought in for this reason, which kind of speaks to Yojimbo or Sanjuro himself, who is this profiteer, you know, just like, oh, there's a situation I can exploit that you guys created. Technically, there's two profiteers in the movie, uh, not just uh, Yojimbo, but also the coffin maker. And this is signified with the costumes. Now, I'm not an expert on my products, but I could have sworn he was wearing both silk and fur on his coat. I, I didn't see that with the other two gangs. And I noticed the costuming distinctions as well with the gangs. Uh, I forget what the, I think it was Ushi Tora's gang wears the more solid colors. They're more, it's a more uniform look and, uh, Sebi's gang, it's, it's patterns, it's lighter and it's, it's more rough looking. They're the more scrappy looking gang. And I didn't really notice that until I rewatched this movie a couple days before prepping for this. So to add on to Eric's point, there's so many new things I pick up on it every time I watch it. Well, everyone's corrupt. We mentioned the mayor. I mean, he's profiting off of like, you know, I, I get, we we assume it's illegal sir, as an illegal silk merchant, uh, and there's and there's like a town. I guess he's like the local law enforcement. He's the first character that Yojimbo meets when he enters the town, and right away he's trying to get like a cut uh, uh, by recommending him to you know one of the factions. And you know he's like trying to be like a headhunter, basically. You know, here I could get you a job with this guy if you give me ten percent of what they give you. You know, kind of thing. So it's like everybody's in it for the money. Yeah, everybody's definitely in it for the money. Can we talk about those ratty gangsters? <laughs> the, the, the gangsters in this movie, they're, you know, you mentioned comic books earlier, and they look like comic book characters sometimes because they're, so many of them have like makeup on their faces that's supposed to make them look dirty, and they just look, they look very funny to be frank. And then one of the few that doesn't have dirt slash makeup on their face is the giant. And that fucking giant is scary. I mean, this guy is crazy big looking. And especially that he just wanders around town with a fucking hammer. It's just terrific. And I love that reaction that Mifune gives him when he sees him. He's just like going across, scanning all these guys' faces when he is, you know, taunting them. And he looks up and sees that giant and gives this kind of like surprised <laughs> thing. So classic. Yeah, that the giant is a very, very memorable visual element, uh, especially with that huge hammer. The hammer's huge. Yeah, I mean, he definitely had like acromegalia or something, the way that his face is deformed and that, but but that made him look even more sinister. He was like the you know the Rondo Hatton of of Japanese films, you know. 
the the thing that I love about Yojimbo is just that he well he feigns interest or feigns disinterest throughout this entire thing. You know, people will come to him and he'll just be like, eh, whatever. And that he just sits there. So much of this movie is spent in that bar. And so much of this is him just basically sponging off of the barkeep. You know, the barkeep is one of the first things he says is like, yeah, yeah, I know no money, but here you go. Like eat this rice and get the hell out of my town kind of thing. I don't want you here, but he's like, no, no, you know, just sits there, drinks and eats the entire time. And he just seems so content to just hang out in this bar and basically let people come to him after he shows his prowess. Obviously, there's the obvious reasons why they're going to him. Okay, well, I want you to be with me, and then we can, like, win this, like, war or whatever. But then you have, like, these characters. Like, you have, the, like, the dumb brother. And he's great because you get the sense that he really likes Yojimbo. You know, he's, like, he's not in it. You know, he's, he's sucking up to him because, ah, he's tough. I like him. No, no, no. Leave him alone. He's tough. <laughs> and he really cracks me up. Counting how many men that they've lost, and he's got to pull his fingers out. <laughs> That could be so cheesy, but he handles it so well. It is just so well done. Everyone is so memorable in this, and everyone looks like they're having so much fun. You know, uh, I mean, the quote-unquote villains of the piece, you really see the difference between one group and the other. You know, even the wife of the one gangster guy. She seems to be the real brains behind their operation. You don't see a character like that in a consequent like remakes. You, there is sort of a female character, uh, matriarch character in Fistful of Dollars, but but we're supposed to, I think, sympathize with her more. And, whereas in, in this, she's like she's like a badass gangster leader. It, it, and, and it's interesting because this is like a Japanese film from the 1950s. It's, it's, it just blows my mind. But I love how the husband of that woman, he's trying to pretend like he's running this thing. He's like, oh, that silly woman. Like, he's try- like you know how he like bows off to her. It's like, oh, I got to talk to her. She's so silly. <laughs> he's like trying to like give off this impression that he's like, oh, I'm the head of this uh, operation. But no, it's really her. I literally just found out an hour ago that the woman who plays um, the uh, the matriarch in that gang was uh lady macbeth and throne of blood and she really yeah she really plays these like bitchy like female characters really well yeah that's a great scene in and of itself when um they they find they you know first you know they kind of like oh we're gonna hire you but you know we're gonna kill him once the war is done kind of thing it overhears it uh oh before i get to that that scene that happens before that where like he's meeting with them and they have like a master swordsman that's like all bent out of shape and jealous that he's not getting the respect that they're giving Yojimbo, right? It's not just the respect, it's the money. It's the money, right? And 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 then they're like they, they announce they're gonna go to war and all that stuff, and Yojimbo like steps out of his like room and sees this like master swordman climbing over a wall and he just like waves to him and he waves back and he runs away. That's brilliant. That that is so funny. Uh but but I was gonna refer to as a scene the second time when he meets with them. And they decide they're, you know, you know, to sort of like further seduce them. They're going to bring out the geisha girls. They're going to do that little dance thing. It just kind of like happens and then it ends. But within the mere like minute that it happens, it's, it's amazing visually. It's like this little masterful musical sequence that comes out of nowhere and just disappears. Wanted to hear about, uh, one of, I think it was the guy 
who was his primary cameraman, going over to the lights and running his hands over the lights so you get that kind of strobe effect on the girls while they're doing their thing. So it adds even more energy to the scene that's going on. It's almost as if the dancers were casting these lights, you know, the shadows. Just really, really well done. And Mifuni's expression throughout the whole thing is priceless. <laughs> He's like, what the fuck is this? You know, it's, it's, it's great. It's really good. The thing I love, too, is that the families, like we have these two sets of families that are going at this. So it's on the one side, it's the brothers. And on the other side, it's like the nuclear family. And you're talking about the wife and the husband and the way that, you know, she's really the brains behind the operation. And I love that they're trying to set up the son to kill Yojimbo. And just like, you know, he's like, well, I already killed somebody. They're like, oh, that's one person. You know, they... <laughs> It's a, it's such a little thing to him. They're basically denigrating him for not being a better killer and just, you know, you need to take this guy out. And I was like, God, guys, that's a death sentence. And I don't know what they're trying to say, really, when it comes to having these two families on either end, because that is something that they keep up with when it comes to Fistful of Dollars is we've got the brothers on one side, the mom, dad on the other side, though I don't remember the son on the other side. And eventually the son becomes a pawn in this hostage exchange. And then the other person that is the pawn in this hostage exchange that we haven't talked about is the wife of a, he's basically a cuckold that's in town. There's a family that was there and one of the brothers who we just hear about, or no, actually, I take it back in, it's in Fistful that it's one of the brothers. It's in this one. I think it's one of the merchants has a fancy for this woman. It took me a while before I actually figured out what was going on with that. And he pretty much stole her away from her husband and has her set up in this little house. And the husband and the son live across the way. And he just gets to see his wife, you know, basically when the other guy shows up to fuck her. And it's in Yojimbo, when the husband comes in and the only person whose ear he can bend in the entire town is the barkeep. When he comes in and is talking with the barkeep, Yojimbo is just like, fuck this guy. This guy's fucking pathetic. And the way that they frame them is amazing. But then that you find out that he doesn't think that the guy's necessarily pathetic, that he actually helps this guy out, helps out the family. It's a really nice bait and switch. It's also an interesting kind of callback to his role, to Mifuni's role in um, Seven Samurai, where his character makes a similar comment about the peasants, right? About these guys are pathetic, you know, and all that stuff. And and, and the implication is, well, he used to be one of them, or he is one of them, you know. Take that for what it is. Um, I just want to, like, digress for a moment, because, you know, I have a computer in front of me. Thank you, internets. But when he's asked his name, Yojimbo says is he looks out in the field and he calls himself Kuabataki Sanjuro. And Kuabataki means mulberry field, and Sanjuro means 30th son. And then he follows that up by saying, though, I'm closer to 40. So that's that's where he gets the name. He looks out, sees something in the field, and then, yeah. So his character name, if we're going to call him Sanjuro, basically means 30-year-old. I think it means 30th son. But he was doing a play on that by saying, though, I'm closer to 40, actually, which is why, you know, it's hard. I guess it's hard to translate that into English to make it effectively funny. But there you go. Right. And then I can't remember what he calls himself in Sanjuro, but it's also 
the I think it's the Camillas or something, and then the thirtieth year for them. Right. He calls himself whatever Camillas are in Japanese, and then Sanjiro as his last name. So it's so it's a recall back to Yojimbo. Or his first name. I can never. Is he calling himself by first name, last name, or would he call himself by last name, first name? Uh, that's a good question, actually. I guess it would be Sanjiro Kuwabatake. It's always tough for me when I talk about Toshiro Mifune, because I'm just like, should I be calling him Mr. Mifune, or should I be calling him Mr. Toshiro? But I believe it's Mr. Mifune. Well, that's the fascinating thing about Japanese language, is that it's it's hard to learn, but it's really easy to pronounce. Because their words are basically made up of vowels, so you, as long as you keep that in mind, it's it's like you, you like if you anglicize, you know, if you spell it out, you know, phonetically uh, in an anglicized format, to pronounce it, it's just pronounce each vowel that's in that name. And there's no silent letters, which is always nice too. Yeah, so he really puts on a show about this guy like being so weak. You know, guys like that make me sick. He says, and again, it's just that brilliant framing that we have the way that mafune is in the back looking one way the cuckolds in the middle looking another way and the bartenders in the foreground looking you know the the same way that sanjiro is and it's just like wow this is so nice that we're using because you know i talked about the framing but also just to use the depth of all of these things and to have these characters just positioned in different areas to give them power to give them understanding i mean a lot of the the framing kind of reminds me of like really good films noir where we are using characters looking towards the camera not at the camera but towards the camera and then some looking away or some in the background and the way that they'll have these conversations where they're not looking at each other but we get to see their expressions at the same time and it's really kind of nice the way that they set these things up there's a shot uh, around this around this time with the uh, cuckold husband. Uh, it's when um, I believe it's Yojimbo. He's looking uh, from the looking and the left of this of the frame, and then the bar keeps looking at the right. And it reminds me of uh, Ingmar Bergman's uh, persona. Like they're both like facing away from each other. Uh, I believe it's before uh, Ushitora uh, comes in the bar. And I think they're trying to get him to join his his gang, like the second gang, after he falls out with the first. But that's another good example. You know, I was just thinking again today about Othello, uh, Orson Welles' Othello, and the way that they talk about Othello through so much of the beginning of that play, but we don't see him for a while. So it builds him up, builds him up and builds him up. And we're just like, who is this guy? Who can this guy be? And really it is so similar with Unosuke, the gunfighter played by uh, Tetsuyo Nakadai. They talk about him so often. And it's just like, eventually my brother's going to get to town and shit's going to get real. Right. And, his introduction and when he finally shows up, it does not disappoint. Oh God. I love his face. It's like, he has like one of those punchable faces. He kind of looks like an Asian Martin Trichelli that, you know, the guy that, <laughs> yeah, he kinda, yeah, he does. I was going to say Ted Cruz, but, but I like yours better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I noticed um, another thing I picked up on is the introductions between Sanjuro and Unasaki have some very key similarities. Um, both uh, when you first 
see Yojimbo and Unasaki, they both have their backs turned to the camera and they're both associated with an element. For Yojimbo, it is the mountain. And for Unasaki, it is the wind. And those elements both uh, indicate what their characters are like. For Yojimbo, he's strong, stable, and he represents order. And then Unasaki, he's like the wind. He's very crazy and he's very volatile and just brings anarchy. And that was a very uh, interesting touch. And I love how they're both foils of each other in this movie. Yeah, what's also interesting about his character is that he's the smartest character. Aside from uh, Yojimbo. Aside from Yojimbo. Even though he gleans pretty quickly what's going on, and he's the one who eventually figures things out. Like, he doesn't necessarily figure out. Yojimbo goes over and frees the woman that we were talking about, puts her back together with her husband and child, and is like, okay, get the fuck out of here. And then he goes in and destroys this whole place. Like, you know, this was, (laughs) it's like Yojimbo saying, this was me. I, you know, killed 10 guys or whatever, and it took me five seconds to do. But any normal person would cause all of this destruction or it'd be like, you know, 20 guys would have had to have done this. So he goes in and destroys this place and makes it look like there's a huge fight there rather than him just dispatching them so quickly. And he comes out and they're still there and he's just like, get the fuck out of here. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like you guys need to run. And they... Ugh, they leave him a thank you note in care of the bartender, and that is eventually what gives him up. In Fistful, there's no thank you note, and there's kind of they find the family, you know, and they kind of figure it all out and everything. But still, uh, Unasuke is like the smartest of those criminals, and luckily, or unluckily as the case were, he can see that there's a thank you note or sees this note and picks up on it and picks it up, literally. So it's not like he's not nearly as dumb as his brother is. Before the thank you note, there's one, it's like there's a couple of moments where they almost figure out what Yojimbo's plan is. I believe it is Sebe when he talks to him in the bar and he says to him like, oh, you're playing on my weaknesses, aren't you? Like he like, just barely touches on what he's trying to do, but he never, he obviously doesn't really think of the full implication of what he just asked. Like he knows he's like, he knows he's flattering him, but he doesn't really think like, Oh, he's doing this to everybody. He's not, he doesn't really think his question through. And uh, as you see, as it plays out. And at one point, things just finally go nuts. And it's right around the time that the jig is up for Yojimbo and he gets the shit beat out of him. Uh, our, our giant friend with the hammer uh, definitely plays a, a good role in keeping him in line and just beating the hell out of him. And this is one of those moments where like, it took me a long time watching enough action films from the eighties and nineties before I realized, Oh, this is, our hero's journey. Like the the hero always has to go through the part where he gets the shit kicked out of him, And then he comes back from that. You know, I'm, I'm uh, when I talk about the best examples of cinema, of course I have to talk about Steven Seagal. You know, this is very much that moment when he comes out of the coma and has to bring himself back, you know? And, and this is very much like that where Yojimbo crawls away and then, manages to hide out by the cemetery and brings himself back by, you know, like practicing with a knife and everything. And 
it took me forever to realize like, oh, that that's an action movie trope that I never really glommed onto until now. You know, it's like if they're not beating the hell out of him, they'll kill his dog. There's got to be some inciting incident that's going to give it that now it's personal moment. I don't think you understand. These boys killed my dog. Getting back to what I said before, that's something that the, the consequent remakes kind of missed out on was the simplicity of how what skill Yojimbo, the protagonist, practices to improve while he's while he's co- convalescing, right? It's this very simple thing where he's given a knife that was given to protect himself as he's being taken out of town. And he uses that knife to practice like just aiming at things and, and just hitting it, you know, getting it every single time. Whereas like, you know, Fistful of Dollars is just another gun. He's just using, you know, he's just learning how to use it in his other hand, right? Never mind the fact, like, how did he get the gun in the first place? But there you go. We, I just want to go back a bit to the moment where he's hiding in the coffin. And this is something that shows up in all the other remakes where he asks for them to stop moving him so he can see, you know, the building burn down scene. It works so much better in this version than it does in all the consequent versions because you get the sense he's a little further away. Plus, the quote unquote technology is just simply this box that men are carrying, and to make it even further more brilliant, the cafe bar owner enlists the help of, like, the dumb brother to help him carry it to the cemetery, right, outside of town, right? We don't see anything like that in any of the remakes. And that the barkeep appeals to the dumb brother's his ego by saying, like, oh, I think there's ghosts in the cemetery, and the guy's just like, well, show them to me. I'll, I'll tear them up. I'll tear them. He's like the cowardly lion, right? I'll show them. I'll give them what they got. Put him up. Put him up. Which one are you afraid? I fight you both together if you want. I fight you with one poor tie behind my back. And then when they get there, he's like, so uh, where's the ghosts? Right. Oh, you must have scared him away. You're so tough. But I want to get back to that scene uh, of that fire uh, where they burn out the rival gang, right? Up to that moment, it's been pretty much you know, tongue-in-cheek kind of film. Yeah, Yojimbo gets his ass kicked and stuff like that. But we're still, you know, back in our mind, he's going to get out of this. He's a hero. We'll see what happens. But that scene, when they uh, burn out, when they smoke out the, the the rival family, and then they kill them, that's that. That's where the film goes. turns from being, you know, darkly humorous to being dark. And it's an interesting switch in tone. Yeah, as Martin Lawrence would say, Shit just got real. You know, I had no idea that scene was day for night until Mike pointed it out in the outline. And I watched that scene again a couple of days ago, and I noticed it works so well because it's such a tight shot. You don't see much of the sky at all. As in A Fistful of Dollars, it's very obvious that it's day for night. He mentioned, Mike mentioned it was a day for night scene. And when I was watching that scene in A Fistful of Dollars, I was like, oh, yeah, that's supposed to be day for night. Like, it's like, it's just slightly darker. It's just. Well, that was that was actually a problem with um, color photography versus black and white photography. It's more noticeable with color photography because basically you're putting a blue filter over the lens, right? Uh, but it's still, it, it doesn't, that's not to take away from how masterful the day for night photography is in Yojimbo. I mean, that scene when, you know, Yojimbo, you have the wide shot of him crawling towards the bar outside. You just sit there and you're like, that's nighttime. But that was shot during the day. The making of that's on the Criterion disc is amazing. It's like, to hear them talk about the shot 
under the building and the focus puller talking about how he was pulling focus uh, as Yojimbo's going around and that he had Mifune show him how he was going to crawl under that set and then he memorized where he was going to be at certain points. Because he couldn't get under there. He couldn't he couldn't actually like go th- he couldn't actually look through the viewfinder in order to, you know, to follow the shot. So he had to do it without actually looking at what's going on. That's amazing. Well, and then not only that, but then he like rigged up a whole series of wires and he's pulling like one wire with one hand, one wire with another hand, one wire with his fucking foot. It's just like yes. what? <laughs> this is crazy. Yeah, no, it's 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 brilliant. Well, it also speaks to how great Mafuni is that he's doing the exact same move, it's the exact same way, so that they're able to pull off a shot like that. I watched that extra as well, and and we were talking about the dog bit at the beginning of the film. I think the guy who was in charge of the props and the costuming and all that stuff was put. You know, Kurosawa came up with the idea of the dog, right? He like asked his writers, "Can we come up with something that you know, Yojimbo is confronted with when he enters this town to show how messed up this town is?" And they kept with all these ideas, and none of them satisfied Kurosawa. And and for some reason, he came up with the idea. I forgot where he got the idea from. Uh, of, of the dog showing up with a hand in its mouth. I guess the idea is he saw, one time he saw a dog walking around with like a, like a bag of groceries in its mouth. And that's where he got the idea. And so this guy was tasked with finding the right dog. And it, it, in the interview, this gentleman describes how he was like just out shopping. And he saw this like, this dog running around following this little girl. And he's just like, oh, that dog's perfect. And like literally followed this little girl home. Which, which must have been really, really creepy for her, right? And they wound up knocking on her door. And it's like, uh, can I use your dog? <laughs> you know? And he wound up, uh, they, they became okay with it. So he wound up like walking the dog, like volunteering to walk the dog for day, you know, for the next consecutive day so the dog could get to know him and everything like that. And it's kind of an interesting story in and of itself. And the guy who had to come up with the prop, it was just like, hey, you need to make me a hand and you need to make me an arm. He was just like, what? Like all of a sudden, it kind of gets dumped on him to do this. <laughs> he was like, and oh, he got okay. some, he got some actor to do it. He knew if an actor could do it. And, and that actor appears in that first gang scene in Yojimbo, the first gang he walks up to. And, and I think it's one of the guys he slices and kills, right? To prove his worth. Yeah. That's an amazing story too. Well, I want to talk about the sound because apparently it was not okay for a long time to amplify the sound that the sword makes when it cuts through somebody. And Kurosawa was just like, no, no, no. I want to hear this. I want to hear the sounds that these make. So they had to, you know, get the Foley guy and he was figuring out how he's going to do this. And I, it's very, in this movie, it's very subtle. Like I'm, you know, we talked, a long time ago on this podcast about uh, the Lone Wolf and Cub films. And in that, you hear the slice very loud. You hear the ripping of the clothes. You hear the spraying of the blood. And we'll talk about blood spray when we talk about Sanjuro. But we get all of that really super loud. But that's also like almost a decade later. So with this one, it kind of led the way to say, let's go ahead and do this. And, you know, like if you listen for it, you can hear it. And apparently that was almost too much for our tender American ears to handle was to actually realize that this guy is slicing up people with his sword when he is, you know, doing these amazing movements. And I love to see the way that he, you know, is just able to use that sword. And that it's so clever 
to your point, Eric, that he is there practicing with that knife over and over and over again, trying to pin down that leaf. And then that ends up being his saving grace that he's able to disarm the guy who has the gun, who brings the gun to town, which you know, it's such a, a new invention and he's so proud of it. I just love every time that he brings out that gun and just marvels at the power of it. It's almost it's, like a Freudian thing. Like you could argue that the gun is kind of like a phallic symbol. <laughs> oh, truly. Absolutely. Yeah. And that moment when they have the, the, you know, the classic iconic showdown, right? When he shows up and, you know, to confront everybody, all the bad guys after he's, he's recovered and everything like that. And it's like big dramatic moment. And then, uh, uh, Unosuke pulls out his gun and <laughs> Mifuni just shrugs and it just starts marching forward. You know, it's like this moment where you think it's going to be this like big dramatic like thing. And it's just like, okay, let's do this. And he just like keeps going. And they're like, what the fuck? Oh my God. And they start freaking out and he throws this and he just throws it down. It's awesome. It's just really, really cool scene. Oh, and it happens so fast. I mean, in any, you know, we're going to talk about Mifune or sorry, we're going to talk about Leone in a few minutes and the way that those showdowns, you know, some of them take so long to go and you're building up the tension and building and building and building. And in this one, it just happens so fast. So you're just like, Oh my God, what just happened? And the moment after is where things kind of get extended. And, you know, you, you mentioned Jordan, the, the whole phallic uh, symbol with the gun. And I love that he has to get his gun back in his hands. He's just like, Oh, let me, let me just hold it. Let me just hold it. <laughs> And in the end, he couldn't shoot his load. On a kind of unrelated note, I found out a few days ago that the actor Tatsuya Nakade, who plays Yunosaki in this movie, also played Hidadora and ran. Like, what range? I had no idea. Yeah, he is everything that, you know, Mufune is, which is amazing, because Mufune could play so many different types of characters. And you almost discount him because he's the baddie, you know, in, in this movie, you're just like, oh, yeah, whatever, this guy. And then he comes back in the second movie, comes back in Sanjuro, and he's almost unrecognizable. I probably wouldn't have recognized him if um, the connection wasn't made to me. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, luckily, he was still around when they did that making of, so he was able to speak to what it was like being in that role and talked about all the days that he spent on his stomach with that fake blood around him because he stays alive for a long time at the end of this movie and talks quite a bit to the point where watching this the first time and even now I'm laughing because he just doesn't want to die. I think Tatsuya Nakade is actually still alive. I didn't see like a death date on his Wikipedia, but of course Wikipedia can be a dubious source. It's funny, he's interviewed in that extra we were talking about before, that was with the Criterion release. I don't know when that was shot, but he kind of looks like Michael Caine. Once this movie decides to end, though, it ends so quick. And that always cracks me up, too, because it's just like, here's the bartender. You know, it's there's no talk of Yojimbo sticking around the town or anything. It's basically like, you know, we've killed the bad guys. The two merchants, they go at it finally, and one murders the other. And... We've got our bartender strung up in the middle of town. Yojimbo comes over and slices the ropes. They, it, 
they all act like he's going to kill this guy, which is like, wh- why are you afraid of this? But he slices the ropes, and then basically he just says, okay, see ya, and then walks off. The end. Such a quick wrap-up. It's the best ending for it, really. I mean, uh, that's another problem that um, Last Man Standing has. It kind of, like, the ending drags on a little bit. Not too badly, but uh, but that ending really works the best. And I love the scene with when the mayor, like, right after the fighting starts, he's just beating that drum. It's, like, straight out of Saturday Night Live, like, boom, 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 boom. And the look on his face before he kills the other merchant. <laughs> So let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll be back after these brief messages. Attention, attention! Are you a fan of MASH, one of the most groundbreaking television series in history? Then take a listen to the MASH 4077 podcast, where hosts Kenny, Simon, and Al discuss their thoughts episode by episode. They will also share with you some little-known behind-the-scenes information, trivia, and so much more. So come and find them on iTunes by searching MASH 4077 podcast or online at www.mash4077podcast.com. is Carl Kolchak. He's a reporter. Now that is news, Vincenzo. News. And we are a news paper. We are supposed to print news, not suppress it. With the INS. What's an INS? Independent news servicer founded in 1904 by Enrico Peluzzi. Who seems to have a nose for the strange and unusual. Well, last year in Las Vegas, I uncovered a series of murders that turned out to have been committed by a vampire. And what is the Kolchak Tapes? It's a podcast. All about Carl Kolchak. What's a Kolchak? The Night Stalker. And where can you get it? On iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.kolchaktapes.com. As foolish a game as any that Gordy the Ghoul could make up. How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 1. The Quatermass Method. Simply recast a new actor in the original role. Hope that no one notices that a familiar character now looks completely different. This was also famously used in the James Bond films. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast at www.britishinvaders.com. Short cigar belongs to the man with no name. This long gun belongs to the man with no name. This poncho belongs to the man with no name. Heard you want to see me. What's wrong, Ramon? You losing your touch? Shoot to kill, you better hit the heart. Aim for the heart or you'll never stop me. man with no name. Danger fits him like a tight black glove. He is, perhaps, the most dangerous man who ever lived.
three coffins ready. <laughs> I don't think it's nice you laughing. You see, my mule don't like people laughing. It's the crazy idea you're laughing at him. Now, if you apologize like I know you're going to, I might convince him that you really didn't mean it. My mistake, four coffins. This man with no name is played by Clint Eastwood. He's going to trigger a whole new style in adventure. A Fistful of Dollars is the first motion picture of its kind. It won't be the last. Let's talk about Fistful of Dollars because we talked a lot about it. So there's just a little bit more that we should talk about here. Now, Fistful of Dollars, not the first spaghetti western, but let's say it's the first spaghetti western hit. And it really changed the landscape of Italian-made westerns, and all of a sudden, this movie paved the way for so many things that are still with us today. This was an unacknowledged remake when it came out. There's no mention of the original scriptwriters on this movie, and Kurosawa ended up having to sue Leone to get any sort of uh, recompense for this. And even now, when you get this from, you know, your uh, Kino Lorber you know, DVD or Blu-ray, there's no mention of Kurosawa and the other scriptwriter in the credits. And you're like, mm, okay. Like a lot of times they'll go back and they'll kind of fix things along the way, like inspired by a story by or something like that. But there's none of that because these are not the credits that ran in the original, which is, you know, one of the things that is always interesting about those, those old spaghetti Westerns, they anglicized all these names. So like Sergio Leone was not, let's just say he wasn't the director of a fistful of dollars. It was somebody completely anglicized uh, because everybody took these names. They wanted to either pretend and I get different readings of this. They either wanted to pretend to the Italians that this was an American Western, or they wanted to pretend to the Americans that this was an American Western, but either way, they're pretending to be something that they're not in order to obfuscate that this was made in Europe. Well, a lot of it at the time was that Italians were still discriminated against. You know, people call them WAPs or Greek. I think people call Italians greasers. I know they would call Hispanics that. So I think that was a big part of why they would do something like that. And I don't think really until the Godfather movies came out about a decade later that you start to see a more acceptance of Italians in the media. Although, as we'll discuss with Last Man Standing, there are there's people still uh, grossly uh, stereotype Italians to this day. <laughs> Just for the record, it was Bob Robertson was Sergio Leone for this film. So, and Gian Maria Volente was Johnny Weiss. So, yeah, they they all had like these. Other names that they went by in order to uh, kind of cover up their origins, which was which funny. is so funny because this movie made stars of like like Gian Maria Volante was became a big star in Italy after that, and just you know his name that name became famous, not his anglicized version. 
Right. And, oh, and Ennio Morricone as uh, Dan Savio. You know, Morricone, I mean, we talked about the score for Yojimbo, but the score for Fistful of Dollars is another. I mean, both of those movies are wall-to-wall music, and especially Yojimbo, but there's still a ton of music when it comes to Fistful of Dollars, and it is great music. That opening, those credits, oh, still give me chills today. Yes, it's a fistful of dollars is is a very well shot film. I rewatched it recently, and and it's not my favorite of the trilogy. I, I I still think you know well, good to bad, the ugly is a masterpiece as far as I'm concerned. But I actually think a few dollars more is better than a fistful of dollars. But there's a lot of good in this film, considering the the, the limited budget they had to make it. It's exceptionally well shot. Uh, Leon was a master of the widescreen and filling it. With, you know, uh, there'll be empty space and then there'll be a face. I saw Fistful of Dollars uh, a week ago, actually, for the first time. I was very fortunate to see The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly on the big screen last summer, and I absolutely loved it. I had also seen another Sergio Leone movie, Once Upon a Time in the West. I thought that movie was very drawn out. Um, I mean, there... I mean, the shots are great, but man, that felt like a long movie. Good, The Bad, and The Ugly was great. It was... It felt like the three hours didn't feel too long. I thought Fistful of Dollars was okay. I mean, it's not bad, but I guess, like, I don't know, I guess I have Yojimbo on such a high pedestal. Yeah, Yojimbo, like I said, it's it's a simple plot, but it's 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 deceptively simple. And it's it's like this finely crafted watch where all the components work. Yojimbo doesn't beat you over the heads with themes about the generation gap or the falling apart of a current government or the civil war but those things are there it's subtle and that's really hard to pull off also the big difference between the two i'm glad you brought that up because kurosawa approaches it almost antithetically to the way leone approaches it uh leone's approach his whole approach is he's big on mythologizing the western genre he sees it as almost like an opera it's almost, you know, he, he saw the American Western as like the closest thing America had to like an Arthurian legend kind of thing, right? So he really wanted to play up that aspect. Whereas, whereas Kurosawa is, is demythologizing the whole samurai thing by kind of making fun of it and, and really de- totally de- deconstructing it and bringing out the cynicism and all that stuff. It's, 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 it's completely the opposite of what, what Leone's doing with, with his take. And it's interesting that both of these filmmakers are taking something that is associated so much with America and reinterpreting it in their own ways and then kind of, not necessarily directly, but kind of feeding it back to America. You know, both of these movies came out in the States, but they came out in different venues, which is very interesting. That someone who saw A Fistful of Dollars probably wasn't going to see Yojimbo and vice versa. You know, Fistful of Dollars was seen as very low art, and Yojimbo, because it came from Japan and it came from Kurosawa, was seen as very high art. And so you didn't have much crossover. It wasn't like we had, you know, the multiplexes that we do today where you could go from one theater to another and see this kind of thing. Even though even when it comes to multiplexes, you don't necessarily get art films mixed in too often with your popcorn movies. And Fistful, even though it plays in the exact same gene pool with so much of this, 
is the popcorn movie and Yojimbo is seen as the the higher art movie. You know, it's there's a reason why Yojimbo and Senjiro are on the Criterion collection and the Dollars trilogy is not necessarily. I consider them to be equal as far as films and filmic experiences, but when they came out, it was very different. So it's it's interesting that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily have known too often. I mean, I think it was very quickly known in certain circles. Yes, this is a remake of another film, but Joe Average or James Average might not know that these are the same things, you know, because we didn't have a lot of crossover then. And and they're not tweeting about it either. And they're not making movies about like, hey, let's compare the movies back and forth. Like, you know, he's ripping off such and such movie from this other country. <laughs> not that I disagree with you, I don't. But I think a lot of people were introduced to Yojimbo by way of A Fistful of Dollars. So if someone saw A Fistful of Dollars and they were later told, you know, this is a remake of the Samurai film, people were like, oh, I'll check that out. Because A Fistful of Dollars, remake or no, is is iconic in of itself. Not least of all because it introduced uh, Clint Eastwood as a le- leading man of cinema as opposed to a TV actor, who is perfect in this. Uh, Jordan, you mentioned uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, which I, I adore that film. I think it's a great film. There's plenty of great things about it, but I just feel like the pacing is very... But I was going to say, it is, it is. It's a very slow-paced film. But the two leads were Leone's first choices for The Man with No Name. He wanted Henry Fonda to do it. He was too expensive, so he offered it to uh, Bronson. And Bronson turned it down because he thought the script sucked. And then years later, Once Upon a Time in the West was supposed to be the fourth Man with No Name film. Eastwood didn't want to do it. But at that point, uh, Leone had enough of a name where he could get, like, you know, uh, Bronson and, and Henry Fonda get on board. Plus, Henry Fonda was, was uh, really excited about playing a villain for a change, which is something he'd never done. There are some things I definitely really liked about A Fistful of Dollars. I loved um, the scene where uh, East was getting out of his, I guess, torture dungeon, and he rolls that big-ass barrel to, like, crush that huge guy like it happens so fast and it is hilarious (laughs) some of the lines in this movie i mean just his introduction to the baddies in this one when he when he says you know see i understand you men were just playing around but the muley just doesn't get it of course if you were to all apologize (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it's nice you laughing See my mule don't like people laughing It's the crazy idea you're laughing at him Now if you apologize like I know you're going to I might convince him that you really didn't mean it. Oh my God, I love that scene so much. That scene and then the whole idea of Giancarlo Valente and... When a man with a forty-five meets a man with a rifle, the man with a pistol will be a dead man. I love that. And this whole idea of, of resurrection, I mean, this this movie is steeped. You know, the reason why I call the the family that the man with no name saves the holy family is because i think we have like maria juan and jesus are basically the the family names i know i'm not exactly on on those names but so yeah he's saving that holy family and this is the time too where he, the you know she asks him why are you doing this and he's like well 
he said, I, I saw a woman and I saw somebody in a similar position and couldn't, who couldn't help themselves, something like that. And you totally know that he's talking about himself. And another thing about the Holy Family you add is the Catholic imagery in this is very overt. And I think it adds to the operatic aspect of uh, Leone's Westerns. The acting in this movie, I really like a lot of the actors in this. Like I said earlier, the only person I don't like in this is the little kid. And I think it's the only thing I don't like about the little kid is the dubbing on the kid. Like whoever they got to dub that... my god shut that fucking kid up shane come back shane oh at least he only says that twice but this kid says mama i don't know how many times and it's just to the point where you want to mute the tv it's just like stop it stop it already get that kid his fucking mom and while it's interesting to like observe the parallels between what happens fistful of dollars and what happens to ojimbo as much as i like fistful of dollars it's just like because I watched them both back to back recently to prepare for this podcast, you really notice how much better Yojimbo does it. Even when it comes to like plotting things out, like the simplicity of him learning, you know, relearning his skills with a knife and how that applies to the co- uh, climax. Whereas it's just, it's, you know, all he does is learn how to use his gun with the other hand. Although, you know, coming up with like the bulletproof cast iron chest plate, right? It's kind of brilliant. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a nice kind of like twist on that, updating on that. And also, as I said earlier, the gunfights aren't as fun to watch as the sword fights, at least in my opinion. You know, with the sword fights, you have all this choreography, this, this drama to it, this action. But, you know, with the gun, it's literally wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. And I like, while I understand what Leone was going for uh, with, with the scene with uh, when the man with no name leaves the the place that like was was containing the wife whatever that he just helped free and he jumps on that horse and tries to rush back to his his bedroom i get he was going for suspense and all that stuff and the anticlimax would be that you know the bad guys they're waiting for him in his room i like how they handle it so much better in yojimbo and it's handled so much simpler it's just very simple i kill these people you get out of here i'm gonna wait here till the others show up that's it yeah, and then, you know, asking the brother later, did you see the bodies before you left or not? And then even the tension when it came to, like, rolling that sake bottle over the thank you note and then our bartender trying to pick up that thank you note. I will say I love the bartender in this movie, and I love the coffin maker 
in Fistful of Dollars as well. I mean, these faces, and that was the thing about Leone, was that he cast faces. And I have to say, the faces in Yojimbo are just as good as the faces in Fistful of Dollars. We tend to get a little bit closer when it comes to the faces in this, to the point where you like, you know, see the pores on some of these guys' faces. Both of these movies are populated with such interesting looking people. There's a shot of the interior decoration on one of the gangs in A Fistful of Dollars. I believe it's when uh, the woman, Marisol, uh, when the man with no name rescues her and he brings her into this, like he sneaks into the house. He's like, and the matriarch in this woman, in this movie, she's like, oh, you always come at the right time. Like, I love the way the inside of that house looks. It's like this Mexican Gothic look to it, like this rich red and. Oh, it was just so cool. It was great. And yeah, again, we have the mother and father on one side, and then we've got the brothers on the other. And it took me a long time to really realize who's a brother and who's not a brother, like who's a Rojo and who's not a Rojo. Because I thought for sure that the guy named Chico, the guy who gets crushed by that barrel that you're talking about, I thought he was part of the family, but I guess he's just like one of the the gang members. Because Mario Brega will come back in other leone films and he's another person that just has a great face he just i love watching him on screen as i love watching so many of these characters well g and maria uh, volante shows up in, in a few dollars more again as the bad guy but he's great in this he's, he's a lot of fun to watch and he really lives up to that character they keep talking about and there he is yep he's that guy they, they've been talking about throughout this whole film right but i find that it's not that the characters in this aren't memorable. It's just they don't have the colorful qualities that the characters in Yojimbo have. You know, there's there's something that they're almost stoic compared to the characters we see in Yojimbo. In fact, they do a lot of compression. Uh, they make, you know, there's the family. You were mentioning the husband and wife uh, of the one family. That husband is basically the rival gang leader and the mayor and the, the the marshal all wrapped up in one character, right? Whereas they're separate characters in the previous film. There's also something that, that kind of confused me. I hadn't noticed it before. I only noticed it recently because I saw Yojimbo in this film back to back, right? Was that uh, the man with no name's plan is is kind of the opposite of what Yojimbo's plan was. When Yojimbo enters the village, he's going to side himself with the least strong family. Whereas in this one, he initially going to try to hire himself out to the stronger family, the family that's most likely to be the strongest one, which I thought was a weird thing to do, because I think his potential to make more money was to prove his mettle and then hire himself out to the weaker family, because they would need him more than the other family. You know, it's just that that was one thing that kind of bugged me about uh, this version of the same story. He wants to make money, but he, he, to your point from earlier, he doesn't seem as ruthless about making money. And he should. He should be a little bit more cold in this. And, you know, the, it's that, that Han Solo thing that you were talking about before, Jordan, where he's just in it for the money, but then he comes through at the end and, you know, blows up the Death Star. So it's like, yeah, let's, let's have a little bit more of that cold outer shell and not necessarily know what's behind that steely gaze and that cigarito or whatever he's smoking or trying to smoke in this movie. But talk about iconic i mean 
so much of this movie, just like your Jimbo, so much of this movie went into other things. I mean, we can't even talk about, you know, a fistful of dollars. I mean, how many times has that been played upon? How many times has the poncho that the man with no name wears? How many times has that shown up in other things? I mean, Bill Murray wearing it in Groundhog Day, right? You know, just it's every place and just so many things from this. And this is what introduced a lot of that vernacular of Leone to the rest of the world. So like he would perfect it film after film after film. But when it comes to those amazing close-ups, when it comes to those looks that we have, to the showdowns that we have, to the swelling music and the uh, trumpet coming in and playing this you know, glorious song at the end as we're waiting for the uh, explosion of violence, so many of those things come directly from this movie. So both of these films really paved the way for so much that we have now. I think... And please, somebody correct me if I'm wrong. I want to say that Sanjuro is the only sequel that Akira Kurosawa ever ever did. Am I right about that? I think you're right. I think you are too. So yeah, Yojimbo was a big enough hit that it actually got a sequel, which, yeah, he didn't do. You know, we don't have the eight samurai. <laughs> we, we don't have high and low and lower you know we don't have you know men who step on tiger's tail and women too or any of those kind of things well we don't have walk either <laughs> that would be the prequel i guess would be walk sanjiro the thing that strikes me the most about sanjiro is the differences between the sets and the whole idea of we had that wide open set in Yojimbo, and we had the whole idea of the city street and everything. And so much of Sanjuro takes place in two locations, which eventually, it took me a while anyway uh, to figure this out, are right next door to each other. This feels more like a stage play than it does a movie at times. And that's not necessarily a complaint, but it just is a very different um, setting than we had in the first film. You know, what's strange is I had seen Sanjuro before, but uh, as I was rewatching it, there was a lot that I had forgotten. I'm not saying that the movie's forgettable. And the same thing happened to you, too. Didn't you say, like, you didn't remember as much plot-wise? Yeah, there were certain moments that I remember quite a bit, but I didn't necessarily remember all the ins and outs, because there, are, again, are very iconic moments in this. I mean, we have... We have the whole idea of the samurai popping up from the floor um, after they've been hiding, which is picked up again directly right in Star Wars, but in the whole idea of the Camilla trees. But yeah, throughout some of this, I'm just like, okay, now what happens next? Whereas with Yojimbo, you know, even though it does surprise me every time I watch it, uh, Yojimbo is more of a finely crafted Swiss watch, whereas this feels a little loosey. This is more like, for example, Mifuni's character has more heart in this. You know, he has a soft spot for these kids, these boys, whatever. It's like, here he is, Han Solo, and all those boys are like multiple Luke Skywalkers, right? And, you know, he just kind of takes them under his wing, you know, and just decides, yeah, I'm going to help you out because you guys are in over your head. Don't worry, I got this, you know, kind of attitude. And you have uh, the two women, the wife of the kidnapped uh, character and the girlfriend of one of the boys, whatever. Um, and they, they make wonderful foils to Sanjiro in this film. You know, like they're constantly testing his moral, morality, you know. 
but I agree. It just, I, I, I obviously prefer Yojimbo, uh, but there's some stuff that, that's like actually like the very final moment. It's this final confrontation with the bad guy at the end. Out of nowhere, you get this huge spurt of blood. And it's, it's really interesting because it's like a gut punch because it's like, okay, this isn't fun anymore because this is the reality. This is the consequence of violence, right? Um, I think that's like, that's an amazing, very memorable moment. But that's the thing. I only remember the opening scene where he meets the boys for the first time and he hides them and he, and he confronts like the whole army of people that, that, you know, meet him. And then that scene at the end when he, when he slices the guy's throat and, and that's about it. Everything in between, I kind of like always get hazy on no matter how many times I've seen it. Well, and they even make reference to this playing like a play. You know, there's a line where he says something like the spectator sees more than the player. So like the person who's in the audience actually sees more than the person who's on stage. And he's very much that person in the audience. Like even the way that he's introduced into this film where we have these nine samurai all talking about, you know, what's happened with this Chamberlain and, you know, the, this corruption and why didn't the Chamberlain do this? And he tore up my letter and yada, yada, yada. And he's going through all of this stuff and all of the other samurai are like, you know, just waiting there with bated breath. And then Yojimbo just kind of comes strolling in, scratching himself. And it's almost like, you know, Hey, cool story, bro. You know, there's this like, okay. And they just, are like, what the fuck's going on? He's this force of, he's the force of chaos that's brought into this rather than the bad guy being the force of chaos necessarily. He's the guy who comes in and is just like, yeah, you can continue to do this and I'll get killed or you can listen to me and I'll save you. And that basically becomes the running thing through this entire movie. Like no matter how many times he proves to them that he's smarter than they are, they're constantly second guessing him and the debates that they have in this closed room where they're like, should we trust him? Should we not trust him? Like, cause he does a typical Yojimbo thing. At one point he's just like, well, Hey, I'm going to go join the other side and see what they know. And I'll see you guys later. And they're just like, Oh my God, he left us. He abandoned us. And it's just like, Oh, would you stop that guys? Just quit that. Actually, there was another very memorable scene in this movie. I, 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 I should mention. And that's the scene where he's playing undercover, like he's on side of the bad guys, and they they captured three of the boys, and he he basically just walks up and lets them loose, and and the the guys that are left behind that guard them are like, why are you doing that? And he's like, because I'm going to let them go. And then he proceeds. That's a fantastically staged action scene where he just basically does the samurai shit and just like cuts everybody up. But that's followed up with you know him angrily telling the boys this is all your fault yeah and he doesn't like violence in this movie you know he was had no problem with violence in the last movie but in this one he really doesn't like to take lives which is interesting juro is kind of a comment on him aging and like and you see this in the end especially he becomes there's a sort of regret you see after he kills the tatsuya nakade character and i think i think that's a big theme of the sequel I think I think that's why he doesn't like violence. I mean, it might at first glance seem like a plot hole. It might seem contradictory, but honestly, I think it's more of a he's like he's an aging samurai. I mean, he's pushing 40, you know, I think we're also supposed to think that through the course of the film, his arc is he goes from being the sort of cold warrior. I'm willing to kill 
to this guy who's conscious is being kind of played upon by these two ladies, right? Uh, they're the ones that kind of like plant that seed. You know, there's other ways to approach a situation like this, especially like, like his, his patience is tested with how they handle that prisoner, the guy that they've captured and how, you know, we got to beat the information out of him. And they're like, no, we'll just be polite. We'll serve him food. And they get everything they need from this guy to the point where he winds up being on their side. And he goes back in the closet after he comes out and eats and wears the one guy's kimono. And then he's just like, okay, see ya. And gets back in the closet. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's amusing, but it, it kind of brings home that theme that Yojimbo slash Sanjuro is starting to learn through the course of the film. And we could argue, well, did he, you know, is this something that he's developed because the seed was planted by these two ladies? Or is it just that he's reached a point in his life where, this has no meaning for him anymore, where, you know, life is too precious, etc. Um, I wish the film was a little more specific in that intention. Well, this, it kind of reminds me of, well, a lot of other samurai films, but it reminds me of the third Lone Wolf and Cub film, where they talk about what is the true nature of the samurai? What is Bushido? What does a samurai mean? And there's moments like Yojimbo tells the guys, tells these young samurai, these women, they're more samurai than you are. And he respects that other guy that at the end of the film, he doesn't want to take his life. He's just like, listen, I didn't cause you to lose face. We do not have to have this fight. And the guy insists on it. And it's just like, okay, you know, and he ends up killing him after a very, and this, it almost seems like he's speaking to Leone here. We don't have the close-ups of their faces, but we have such a long moment before they finally have their duel just those two standing looking at each other before they finally move to the point where you're just like did i hit pause and forget about this i don't know what's going on it almost reminds me of that slow-mo shot that they had in the seven samurai that is incredibly slow-mo but in this, uh, just sizing each other up for the longest time, and it works so beautifully. And then, yeah, that geyser of blood, and again, that would pave the way for other samurai films, such as Lone Wolf and Cub, where everybody bleeds a geyser of blood. But in this, it's such a shock, because we've never seen anything like that before, especially in this movie. Nobody bleeds like that in this movie until this end, end scene, and when there's such a explosion of violence and then a literal explosion of this blood of this guy's chest it really takes your breath away again it's it's uh kurosawa like testing the sensors you you mentioned that about yojimbo the reason why they didn't have like slicing noises it was the noises of like what it sounds like when a uh, blade hits skin right was because they're concerned that the american sensors when the film was released in america would have a problem with that Kurosawa didn't care. He said, I want to do this and let's just push this and see what happens. So he's pushing it even further with, with what happens to uh, the bad guy at the end of uh, Sanjuro. And so that's like it for Yojimbo uh, until it's not. And then like, uh, what is it, eight years later, then we get two Yojimbo performances, though I don't know if they actually ever come out and say that he's Yojimbo in Machibuse, which is also known as, what is it, the incident at Blood Pass, which is a Hiroshi Inagagi film, who Mufune had worked with before, I think on the Samurai Trilogy. It's a great film, beautiful film. It doesn't necessarily 
feel like a Yojimbo film, though, I have to say. Um, he might be playing another nameless character, but he doesn't feel like Yojimbo to me. You know, apparently Mifuni did a couple of films and they were like, you know what? Let's call this a Yojimbo movie. You know, because he's in it, he's playing a samurai. He was kind of like Yojimbo, so let's cash in. Because Yojimbo was really popular. Sanjuro was also very popular. And so, I think it was more of a cash in on it. It's kind of like all those Django movies that came out of Italy. Like, a good two-thirds of which weren't official Django movies. They just decided to call them Django movies because they thought they would sell better. Yeah, and this, it goes away from so many things. I mean... We have him accepting a mission at the beginning of this movie, kind of again, like Lone Wolf and Cub. It's just like, hey, I want you to go over here, and you're going to get a note, and if it says this, then you're going to go this way. If it says this, then you're going to go that way. And when you get there, you'll know what to do. And then it becomes this, like, closed-room mystery. It kind of reminds me of, like, a predecessor to The Hateful Eight, where it's just like all of these people take refuge in this small place and then we have to figure out, you know, who we can trust, who we're not supposed to trust. There's a prisoner and somebody, you know, holding this guy prisoner. And we have these, you know, different elements coming in and who, you know, who's playing who and all this kind of stuff. So it doesn't feel like a Yojimbo film. Even, I mean, even to the point where Yojimbo has a voiceover and it's just like, no, 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 no. We shouldn't necessarily know what's going on in this guy's head. Again, we'll get to that when it comes to Last Man Standing. We shouldn't know, you know, Yojimbo should be a cipher. We should not know who this guy is. And people will talk about their motivations. They'll just, they'll just say their motivations out loud. It's just like, oh, I really wish that I could get away from here and go join geisha school or whatever and it's just like what are you doing what are you talking about <laughs> you know just be, people doing this and then yojimbo right near the beginning of the film there's a woman who's being abused and he just goes over and saves her and it's just like whoa 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 yeah that's cool that you're saving this woman but that's not what you do like you wait you bide your time you find another way to save her you don't just do this and she ends up like kind of tagging along with them so it's just like yeah, this doesn't feel right. And it is nice that uh, Shintaro Katsu shows up in this movie, uh, who is always a pleasure to watch. And then that same year, Katsu and uh, Mifune would team up again in a movie that allegedly, from everything that I've read, is literally called Zatuichi Meets Yojimbo. So we've got the character that Shintaro Katsu played how many times? Like fucking thirty times he played. Uh, I saw about thir- I saw about thirty Zatoichi titles on Filmstruck, so I believe you're right. And then he also played him in a TV series. I mean, he was Zatoichi for a long time. Uh, he was also Hanzo the Razor and also the Mute Samurai. If you guys haven't seen, or sorry, he wasn't the Mute Samurai. His brother was, but he showed up in the Mute Samurai, which is another great series. But so yeah, Zatoichi Mitsuo Jimbo is, it's not very good. Um, I'm not a, a big fan of the movie, especially because Yojimbo is more Yojimbo in this one, but he's really kind of a dick to Zatoichi a lot of times, and he makes Zatoichi being blind the butt of a lot of jokes, like to the point where there's a house that's burning down and Zatoichi is on the second level and Yojimbo's like, go to your left, go to your left. And Zatoichi almost falls off of this <laughs> platform. Sorry, I'm laughing. And then he knocks up, like Zatoichi takes a bottle and throws it behind him. 
so that he can tell how far down the level is. Yojimbo catches the bottle, holds it for five seconds, and then smashes it on the ground so that Satoichi thinks he's up like 30 feet in the air when he's only like five feet off the air or three feet off the air. So there's some comic moments to it, but this isn't necessarily a Yojimbo film. And it's almost like you have two Yojimbos in this because, again, there's fighting factions and all this stuff. And it's just like, it's a little much. I have to say that The Man With No Name, played by Clint Eastwood, fared better when it came to subsequent films that he was in. You know, even though his name changed from like Joe to Blondie to uh, Blue Eyes, whatever. But unfortunately, I have—I don't think I've seen a Satoichi movie at all. I haven't either. I did see the trailer for Satoichi Meets Yojimbo, and I know that scene you're talking about, Mike. And I did think he did seem kind of like a dickhead, uh, buffoony in the trailer. But, you know, you can't always go by the trailer, so... Um, but looks like looks like that trailer was uh, did the movie justice. <laughs> I really liked Zatoichi meets the One Armed Swordsman. So you have this iconic Chinese hero and this iconic Japanese hero, and so much of the movie is them not understanding one another, which is hilarious. And like you get, at least in the version that I saw, like you would get the Japanese titles going up and down on one side you get the chinese titles going left to right on the bottom of it and they're talking at each other but they can't understand one another and they even say in the dialogue like if only i knew what you were saying so it's pretty funny i will admit i'm kind of a zatoichi novice i haven't seen nearly as many as i probably should i think they're all on filmstruck actually like all of them <laughs> not all of us are rich enough to have accounts on filmstruck i'm sorry to say Boo-hoo. I didn't mean to flaunt my wealth like that, you guys. Whatever, bougie. Personally, I agree with you that The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is a masterpiece, but when it comes to the Dollars trilogy, I go to for a few dollars more every single time. I love that movie. I don't know if it's... I think what it is is that it's almost that Yojimbo meets Zatoichi thing where we have two man with no names though colonel mortimer obviously has a name but we have these two bounty hunters in this movie the way that they interact with one another and kind of cut each other down throughout so much of it but eventually they team up because that's what they have to do and the mystery of the movie is very compelling and the whole idea of them with this bank robbery the idea of Giancarlo Valente with this watch. Where did the watch come from? What significance is it? We're getting these flashbacks. We don't know who's necessarily having them sometimes because both Colonel Mortimer and Valente seem to be having the same flashbacks. It's just, it's done so well. And I mean, even like silly scenes of them, you know, shooting at each other in the street and shooting the hat and, you know, having that hat fly up and up and up. I mean, just stupid little things like that. Just every time I get tickled by this film. That That's the thing about A Few Dollars More. It's like whatever Leone learned from his first film, he, he learned what worked well and he learned what didn't. And so this was like the film where it's like, okay, I'm going to apply everything I learned well and jettison everything that didn't work. And I, what I also really like about this film is, is how, yes, it's a sequel, but it's really Lee Van Cleef's movie. I mean, he's the real protagonist of this film. And 
And I love the dynamic between Lee Van Cleef and, and Clint Eastwood. You don't get any sense of vanity from Eastwood. He's, he's just very generous. He's like, go ahead. Let this be your film. You know, I'm just going to, you know, sit back and help whatever. But they're, they're, it's like, you know, you, you get the sense that after like the big success he must have like experienced from, from a fistful of dollars, he could have been like, wait a minute. I'm supposed to be the star of this film, not Lee Van Cleef. But in this film, no, it's like very much like there's a lot of respect doled out to this character that Lee Van Cleef plays. And he's fantastic in it. And it's a fantastic character. Well, this whole thing with the gun and the attachment that he has for the gun and just even that first showdown that he has with the kid that is one of the ugliest looking kids I've ever seen in my life. He looks like he just came off of the deliverance set and the way that he's shooting at, at Lee Van Cleef over and over and over again. And Van Cleef is just taking out this thing, setting it up, going to do this, and then finally gets it together and shoots that kid. I was just like, fuck yeah, this is great. I didn't catch it for a few dollars more before uh, we recorded, but I loved Lee Van Cleef and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and I'll definitely have to check this out after we uh, stop recording. It's a completely antithetical character from who he plays in Good, Bad, and The Ugly. And he's he's the hero. He's the, he's the main protagonist. Technically, it's a buddy film between him and the man with no name, but it's really his film. He gets all the best scenes. He has the big showdown with the villain at the end. Which is a magnificently shot sequence, by the way. It's up there. It's very similar. He shoots it very in a very similar way to the shoots the the, the duel between uh, Charles Bronson and Henry Fonda in, in Once Upon a Time of the West. Very similar setup, you know. But it's it's really well done. I would say it's more similar to the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly because we have the three different POVs, the three different people in that circle. But it's interesting that Eastwood isn't there to shoot anybody unless somebody doesn't play fair and my god can we talk about klaus kinski as the hunchback klaus kinski was like the spice of euro film from the 60s you know it's like you need that little something extra just give it a dash of klaus kinski and he's just in here the perfect amount not too much not too little and those scenes that he's there and colonel mortimer with his fucking pipe and everything oh my god so good and Lee Van Cleef, I mean, talk about a face that just deserved to be in close-up. I mean, just those, what is it, aquiline features that he had, just amazing. And this is one of those moments where Leone is reaching into the past and reaching into our American movie history and bringing out a character. You know, obviously, Clint Eastwood played Rowdy Yates in, in Rawhide, but I mean, Lee Van Cleef, you know, he was in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. He was in some of these westerns, you know, and he had that amazing, you know, but he was like the third guy from the left in a lot of these movies, you know, and you like, if you noticed that he was there, you were pretty lucky or you were a movie nerd. Um, and then they take him from those kind of roles and put him in this, you know, obviously he had bigger roles. I'm not trying to say that I'd stop, put the tweets down. I know he had bigger roles than just like third guy from the left. You know, I remember the one with him and Peter Graves and the, the creature that conquered the earth and all those things. He learned almost too late that man is a feeling creature, but yeah, he, they was brought into the forefront. He didn't have a role as juicy as Colonel Mortimer until this point. And then after that, 
then it became, you know, Mr. Ugly is back. You know, then it became the big gun down and all of these movies where he finally got those roles that he really deserved and showed that he could basically be a leading man, a very interesting looking leading man. Yeah, he used to play like prior to this, he was he would play like heels or side characters, you know, uh, like in the 50s, late 50s. And he showed up in a lot of like B-movie science fiction films and stuff like that. It's like a jet pilot or something like that. Or, you know, he was like a, he was a heavy in the big combo. That's one of the things that I remember him the most in. But yeah, it was like, oh yeah, there he is over there to the left. And, you know, here he is now full 40 foot wide close up of this guy's face. And it's like, wow. Okay. This is amazing. And then he would go on, you know, this with a lot of the Italian Westerns, this revitalized his career. You know, he could have gone on for the rest of his life playing those heavies, those heels, but instead he managed to carve out this new niche for himself. You know, you, he's not going to be Master Ninja unless he's this, unless he's Colonel Mortimer. He's not going to be even Hawk in Escape from New York unless he's in these, you know, because I yes, I know John Carpenter knew his Westerns, but he's basically being Colonel Mortimer again to Kurt Russell's Monko in that film. So there's that nice dynamic where he's playing again with that relationship that Mortimer and Monko had in For a Few Dollars More, now transported into Escape from New York. Actually, that's a good point. It never occurred to me. Yeah, because I love Escape from New York. Although I'd have to say that 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 uh, Lee Van Cleef's character in Escape from New York is decidedly not sympathetic. No, he's more angelized than he is Mortimer. <laughs> yeah, whereas whereas, whereas uh, in a few dollars more, there's sort of like a father son relationship develops between the two. Sort of, they definitely develop a bond. Sixteen, seventeen, twenty-two, twenty-two. Twenty-seven. Any trouble, boy? No, old man. Thought I was having trouble with my adding. It's all right now. Yeah, the quips between those guys, everything is so good. It just, it works. That For, uh, for a few dollars more... Even the annoying guy uh, who played the uh, coffin maker when he does that whole tweet, tweet, tweet thing in this movie, <laughs> even that works for me. That might have been a little much, but it worked for me. And that they're both detectives, too, which is interesting. They're bounty hunters, and part of that role is to be a detective. So them you know, going around, and like Lee Van Cleef, you know, going and, and getting all of the posters for the wanted men and stuff. I think I was obfuscating two scenes earlier with the wanted men and him and his gun and stuff. But, you know, that was uh, always nice him going in there. And especially the one where he writes the two extra zeros, you know, the, somebody who saw their own wanted poster and added two extra zeros. And of course, it reminds me of Bugs Bunny when he was so mad that the bounty on bunnies was only one cent and he decides to, to jack it up by being the worst person in the world rabbits are perfectly harmless and the bounty stands at two cents oh yeah well I'll show you a rabbit can be more obnoxious than anybody you can't get away with it you'll be hearing from me yeah, that does it 
So let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll be back after these brief messages. If you listen to Proudly Resents, the cult movie podcast, you would know how to properly crush a head. But let's say you want to crush a head like Toxic Avenger or the famous full head crushing scene. You take a cantaloupe, carve out the inside, then you load what we call loading the cantaloupe. We used to put in hamburger mixed with cranberry sauce, but now because I'm a vegetarian, it's only cranberry and spaghetti and things that are not animal. Then you put a wig on the cantaloupe and paint a little happy face. Bingo. That was Lloyd Kaufman from Troma Films. To hear more interviews and reviews, go to ProudlyResents.com or find Proudly Resents on iTunes and Stitcher. Do you like great music? Do you like in-depth podcasts? Do you like the idea of putting great music under the microscope? If you answered yes, no, or fish to any of these questions, Love That Album is the show for you. Every month, Morris and a fellow music fanatic discuss a particular album in detail. They'll cover the performer, the history behind the recording, the musicianship, common thematic elements between the songs, and how many drugs were consumed during its creation. Well, maybe not so much of the last bit. So if you want to hear a podcast bringing perspective to great rock, jazz, folk, punk, and sea shanty music, then subscribe to... Love That Album Podcast at Apple Podcasts or download directly from lovethatalbum.blogspot.com Are you tired of stubborn understains in your gusset? Do you suffer from a peculiar disease which only an expensive series of pills with appalling side effects can prolong? Do you long for a professional movie website and podcast with a sense of humor, insight, and passion that hasn't yet fallen under the thrall of the big studios and basically turned into a soulless marketing hub? Well, we can at least do the third thing. Head on over to AfterMovieDiner.com for all your genre film needs, Americana, movie podcasts, comedy, incredibly large trousers, by fans for fans without added salt, and relatively free of dripping. Our podcast is also available on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found. The After Movie Diner. Come on in, won't you? I was coming through Texas on my way to Mexico. I needed some time to hide out. I should have known better. It didn't take too long before it started. It's not a good idea to be looking at Mr. Doyle's girl that way. I seem to remember a guy once told me this is a free country. Are you free to go? Two bootlegging gangs from Chicago took over this town. You got Strazzi and the Italians on one side and Doyle and his Irish boys on the other. Maybe I can make some money. Well, you came to the right place, sir, because everybody here is making a lot of money. His name's Smith. At least that's what he says. Did you get that car of yours fixed yet? I was hoping maybe you could help me pay the damages. I guess maybe you'll have to kill me. It'll hurt if I do. How'd you like to kill Strani? I figure you for the kind of guy who goes to the highest bidder. Thousand dollars, Mr. Doyle. Nobody's worth that much. You shot some of our guys. Yes, I did. Once it deserved it. 
You want to have my deal? Somehow I had the feeling the walls were moving in on me. Now you've been going back and forth playing both sides. Make yourself a lot of money out of all this. For one little second you think you're going to get away free and clear. You end up paying the price. Kill him. No exceptions. Everybody pays the price. Hickey's coming directly for you. Don't be coming to me for help. I'm going to tell you I quit. You don't quit me. Nobody quits me. What's you thinking about me when you're dying? I'll be in hell waiting for you. Nothing personal. All right, we are back, and we are talking about the Yojimbo slash Fistful of Dollars films. I guess it's really more of a discussion of Yojimbo. And it's time to dispel a myth. For a lot of years, and you might fight me on this, Eric. I'm not sure. So I haven't said this out loud before. For a lot of years, I was told, oh, yeah. Yojimbo, that actually wasn't an original screenplay. That was picked up from Dashiell Hammett's Red Harvest, and that's what they used for this. Now, I went back and I read Red Harvest, and I have to say there's a couple things that are similar between the two works. You know, one's a book, was a short story or a serialized story written by Dashiell Hammett in Black Mask over several issues. One is a movie that comes out. 40, 50 years later, I'm seeing some similarities, but I'm not seeing enough where I say this is a remake of, or even an adaptation of. I can maybe say, like, inspired by, but I can't say that Red Harvest has a direct input into Yojimbo. What do you think about that? Kurosawa is very cagey about this, and very sketchy about it. He claims he never read Red Harvest. And then there's other interviews where he says, well, actually, he read The Glass Key, and he was inspired by that. Uh, it's, it's, I say there are some stronger, I, I, I see stronger similarities between Yojimbo and Red Harvest than maybe you do, particularly certain sequences. There's that whole sequence where the op goes up to the gangster's hideout. I think it's Whisper Thaler's hideout. He's going to, you know, all the cops are surrounding it. And, then, you know, the cop says to him, you know, the bad guy, Noonan, tells him, could you go up and, you know, talk him into, like, giving himself up? So he goes up there and immediately the police start, you know, firing at, at the at the place. It's reminiscent of moments in, in, in Yojimbo, especially like when they burn down the house to smoke the people out and all that stuff. And, and there is that, we should, we should explain what Red Harvest is first, just to give some context to this. Red Harvest is one of my favorite novels of all time, just as Yojimbo is one of my favorite movies of all time. I'm a huge Dashiell Hammett fan. We already discussed this in your Maltese Falcon episode. But I was, I, when I started reading Dashiell Hammett, it was around the same time I saw Yojimbo and I was told there were similarities there. Uh, but it hadn't clicked with me then either. And it wasn't until like many years later I read Red Harvest and I was like, okay, I definitely see, see the similarities. But I fell in love with Red Harvest for different reasons than I fell in love with Yojimbo. In fact, not too recently, but like maybe about five years ago, I tried to develop my own stage version of Red Harvest. I actually got as far as workshopping a, a, a scene from it. But th there's, there's definitely where I would say that if Yojimbo has its DNA in Red Harvest, it's the idea that there's this man with no name that comes to a situation whereby 
sort of seemingly allying himself with different sides and spreading rumors and, and thus affecting a plot, he steps back as they all destroy themselves. Now, what makes Red Harvest different from Yojimbo is that that doesn't kick in until halfway through the novel. In fact, the first third of the novel is devoted to the op solving a murder mystery. And then the rest of it is he decides to stick around and he takes it upon himself to clean the whole town up, a town called Personville, which is nicknamed Poisonville. Now, the big tie-in between this and Yojimbo isn't so much the story parts of it, it's the attempts to try to turn it into a movie, which is interesting in of itself, right? Because the, the, the history behind this is just crazy. There's been many people been trying to get an official adaptation off the ground. For various reasons, it never happened. Uh, the first version was the 1930 film Roadhouse Nights, which is terrible. It's a very uncomfortable film. It doesn't resemble the novel at all. Uh, in fact, Hammett wasn't even credited. And it's weird because it's a Ben Hex screenplay, and I like Ben Hex's work. He, he wrote the front page, right? Um, and it's very uncomfortable for, you know, not only because it's a very creaky movie, but there's some, like, you know, race references in it that don't, you know, don't age well and all that stuff, right? But it's not, it's like, you know, when we talked about Satan Met a Lady in our Maltese Falcon episode, yeah, they changed characters and some of the way things happen, but you could still sort of like recognize the plot as being the Maltese Falcon story, right? With, with Roadhouse Nights, there's nothing there. Like, I'm sitting here waiting, okay, so when does this like Red Harvest style story kick in? When is this going to happen? And it never does. Uh, so that was supposed, that was supposed to have been the only like official adaptation. And I only found out very recently that this film called La Ciudad Maldita. The Bad City. Was made, which was an official, like this Italian producer actually bought the film rights to Red Harvest because he had heard that a fistful of dollars. There's this, okay, let me digress a little bit. Yojimbo comes out. Then Sergio Leone makes A Fistful of Dollars, which was his ripoff off of Yojimbo. The producers of Yojimbo sue Sergio Leone and his film production company. Back then, the rumors started coming about that Yojimbo was inspired by Red Harvest. So in order to counter that claim, they said, well, actually, our movie is an adaptation of Dashiell Hammett's Red Harvest. So moving forward, another Italian producer was fascinated by this story. I guess his intention was, well, I want to do a remake of Yojimbo as well, or A Fistful of Dollars. So I'm going to buy the rights to Red Harvest and, and say that my version is Red Harvest and not a ripoff off of either Fistful of Dollars or Yojimbo. The only problem was uh, there was a stipulation that he had to make the film by a certain date. This is similar to what Roger Corman was facing with his like Fantastic Four movie, right? He had to get it done made if he wanted to retain the rights. This guy quickly rushed out this sort of spaghetti western version of it. And it's a bizarre movie because it's got all the characters. The town's even called Personville. Even the main character is like the Continental Hop. But it's the Wild West. There are no-name actors in it. It's very boring. I try to watch it. I sat through like two-thirds of it. And I was like, I can't. I can't because it feels like it's made for TV. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not very good. But that is, up to this point, I didn't think there had been an official adaptation of this novel since Roadhouse Nights, and apparently this thing existed. And kudos to you, man, for finding it. Uh, I was absolutely like, when, when I saw that show up in the Dropbox folder, I was like, oh my god, I just found out this existed, and here it is. Now, 
Last Man Standing, which is a remake of A Fistful of Dollars, right? They kind of like completed the circle by setting it in the Prohibition era, right? Because, you know, Red Harvest takes place in 1928. And uh, it takes place around that Prohibition era. But they've been trying to make this film for a long time. Bertolucci was the most famous Example, he'd been trying to make it since like the, the, like the late seventies, early eighties. And there was talk about him casting, you know, Jack Nicholson or Robert Redford in it and all this stuff. And Deborah Winger was going to play, uh, Dinah Brand, who's sort of the prototype of the femme fatale character, even though if you read the book, she's not that femme fatale type. She's just larger in life. You know, she could fight any man, uh, that's worth her salt kind of character. And even this particular Italian producer, whose name escaped me, even hired the American filmmaker, James Bridges, to do, like, an actual official version of it that would be, like, period accurate and all that stuff after he made this Italian Western version. And apparently that script is out there somewhere. I haven't been able to locate that. But, I, but again, another kudos to you for supplying us with the Bertolucci, both drafts of the Bertolucci script, which, which are an interesting read in of its uh, – th- th- that's a very interesting read, both of them. There's slight differences between the two drafts. And, and to some extent, Miller's Crossing is cited as inspired by Red Harvest, but that's really an unofficial adaptation of The Glass Key. Even the Coen brothers admit that, yeah, we were surprised the Hammond estate haven't sued us because this is our Glass Key. Well, I can see some similarities, and I can see some informing from Red Harvest into Yojimbo. I especially see kind of the warring factions, but in Red Harvest, we almost have three factions, one being... Noonan the cop, one being the old man who kind of sets things in motion, and one being the group of gangsters. And I think there's, what, four main gangsters? So we have almost three factions, though the cop is almost in the pocket of one person and then the other person. I like the whole idea of uh, of the old man giving the op $10,000 to clean up the city, and then, then he recants it later on and the ops just like nope nope you gave me the money you hired a job done he kind of reminds me of of angel eyes from uh the the good the bad and the ugly right you paid for this job a man paid for this job it's going to get done you know well i'll pay you double like okay you can do that but i'm still going to kill you you know man hired me to kill you i'm going to kill you well man hired me you hired me to clean up poisonville i'm going to clean up poisonville but at the same time the continental op he has scruples yeah, yeah, he has. He definitely has. He's actually not in it for the money. He's in it because it's a moral issue for him. And he's a detective, too. It's his job. And the whole idea of him getting the other detectives to come up from, what is it, San Francisco to help him out and stuff. So there's there's some very big differences. I guess they would almost be like the bartender and the uh, coffin maker type characters, I suppose. Like you could transpose some of that stuff. Well, I was going to say that Elihu Wilson, the old man that you were talking about before, he's kind of a, a fusion of the, the corrupt mayor character and a corrupt sheriff, you know, sort of the mayor character and the guy who owns the bar. You know, on one hand, he's, 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 he's a guy who owns the town or did until he brought in these gangster factions to be strike breakers and then they take over the town. And now he's powerless. But on the other hand, he kind of doesn't want to have anything to do with it. Kind of like the guy who owns the bar. And whether he likes her or not, he's kind of allied himself with the op. What's really interesting, I'm going off in tangents here because there's so much to talk about on this. But like in the Bertolucci script, Elihu Wilson is the guy who kills Dinah Brand, which is weird to me. In the first draft, uh, not only does, does the op figure it out that Elihu Wilson 
kill Dinah Brand. But out of disgust, he throws his badge away, gets on a train to leave Personville, and then out of nowhere, Elijah Wilson's there waiting for him with his entire entourage, and he announces at the end of the script, I want you to run for governor, and I'm going to bankroll you. And that's how the movie ends. That's a weird way to go. Okay. <laughs> it's really weird. It's really strange. Uh, but but it but the book it plays out differently. One of the one of the gang side gangster characters wound up killing Dinobrand. But the murder mystery aspects of it are like secondary to the, to this whole other like bigger story that's in play. And that's that's like the biggest difference between this and Yojimbo and Fistful of Dollars. That there's this more of this epic kind of uh, backdrop canvas that is this town based. It's kind of like ahead. the Big Sleep where the uh, the main detective case isn't as important to the main plot. Although, on the big sleep, uh, the main plot is, eh? <laughs> Well, there's two essential mysteries he winds up having to solve. There's there's the uh, the newspaper editor who's the son of Elihu Wilson. Uh, and then there's later on Dinah Brand's death, right? Where he's, he's afraid that he's the one who actually killed her because he doesn't remember what happened there at all. But really, it's this big thing about him cleaning up the town and, and there's like all these, there's like three different gangsters running the town, plus there's all these side, like, corrupt characters like Noonan, the chief of police, and then you have this, like, union guy, representative, who's who stuck around in town, who, who got tied up with Dinah Brand, and then, you know, you got this whole idea of, like, the whole, like, social uh, messaging going on about how this was, like, you know, this is a steel mining town, and how they tried to unionize, and then the gangsters came in to break this, you know, the strike, break strike, which is somewhat a callback to, like, Hammett's own background, working for uh, the Pinkertons, he was sometimes hired to be a strike breaker, right? And he rather famously became a communist sympathizer uh, later in his life as a result of the things he'd seen. So there's a lot of these, like, things going on that's on this more of this, like, greater sort of more epic canvas than what's, what, what happens in, like, either Yojimbo or Fistful of Dollars. The other thing I like about Red Harvest a lot is that it's not a detective novel. It's not your, you know, everyone thinks, you know, this is the, you know, the template for the hardboiled detective novel. Well, it's really not that. It's a, it's a gangster story with slight Western kind of like pinches, you know, of salt here and there because, you know, the, the town is in, was based on Butte, Montana. It's a Midwestern town. There's a lot of sawdust on the floor, a lot of like unkempt roads and all that stuff. Uh, his vivid descriptions, you know, like everything is just blackened with soot from like the smoke coming from the mines. And it's just a very vivid place that doesn't fit in easily with this, what we would associate with sort of like noir fiction later on. Have you ever read Hammett's short story called Corkscrew? Yes. That to me is almost more similar to Yojimbo than Red Harvest was insofar as they say it outright you're pairing, you're, you're pitting these two people, these two groups against one another. The, the ranchers or the people at the, the circle HAR or whatever it is versus the guy in town. So we're gonna, he's basically causing that war to happen. So it's interesting that it's like that I would say is like prototype for Red Harvest, which becomes kind of a prototype for Yojimbo. And which then, to your point from earlier, is really brought home when it comes to Last Man Standing. Because Last Man Standing is, that actually, you know, credits um, Kurosawa and his co-writer. But that brings in more elements of Hammett than anything else that we've seen, you know, with those other adaptations. It does and it doesn't. And this is 
now we're getting back to the remakes and how they kind of got watered down as they went along. Last Man Standing takes itself so seriously. Like, so seriously. I went to see Last Man Standing. I just want to put this out there. I went to see Last Man Standing on the night that it opened. It was my friend, Mike Thompson, who was on our uh, Highlander episode. It was his birthday. We went out to see this movie, and he won't let me forget that I took him to see this movie on his birthday. Just like this was... I, I could have taken a shit in a box, wrapped it up, given it to him. He would have liked that more than this movie. Before I watched the movie, I actually started watching like the first 25 minutes like two days ago. And then I finished it yesterday. And before I started watching the movie, I saw your tweet like, I didn't like it then. I didn't like it now. And I try not to let that color in my perception. But as I started watching the movie and they see it go to the scene where she's like, uh, you're not supposed to look at that woman like that. He's like, well, that's how much it's a free country. And then he like pops the tire or whatever. And it's just like, I just started to laugh. It's like, oh, it's this kind of movie. It reminded me of a less funnier and a much less well executed version of that scene in Black Belt Jones, the Jim Kelly movie, where <laughs> um, Jim Kelly is like, why haven't you done the dishes, woman? And she like shoots at the dishes, like dishes done. Like, in that movie, it's intentionally funny, and it works, but in this movie, it's just, oh, man. And then when he shoots that guy, and of course, he uses that line, like, it's gonna hurt a little when I kill you, like, and he just, like, flies, like, across the street. I just started laughing. That's an example of what I'm talking about, where Walter Hill directed this. I know Walter Hill, for the longest time, wanted to do a Seven Samurai remake. Oh, he wanted to do a remake of, of John Woo's The Killer, and, and he wanted to do so many remakes, it's kind of crazy. You know, this is an example of, like, when you try to set something in a different period, and you have the problem at, you know, the problem of, okay, now you're dealing with a different kind of technology in that period, how do you get around that? Because what seemed really cool and clever in the first film won't make sense in this context. Like, like that whole scene when he shoots, you know, when he shoots the guy, and he shoots up the office, and he, then he says... You know, if, if he wants to hire me, tell him I'm in the, you know, bar across the street. It's like, who's going to want to freaking hire you after you just shot up their office, right? Like, these things don't make sense anymore. And how they did it, like, like just, like, the, the story just falls apart. I mean, again, I refer to that scene where he's being taken out of town, you know, because he's, you know, so they could hide him somewhere else in that church instead of a cemetery or whatever this time. And it's like they're in this big, loud Studebaker type of car, you know, and it just like clunks along. You know, there's no way in hell, you know, the gangster like saying, let's find John Smith's body and that, you know, is his body in there? Let's find it. And this car like stops behind him and no one thought to turn around and look at the car and say, hey, that might be him in the car. You know, these things just like stand out. Well, both Yojimbo and Fistful of Dollars do this really nice thing where it's like, okay, the brother comes to town and he's got the uh, the the gun in Yojimbo or uh, in uh, Fistful of Dollars, he's got the rifle. So we've got that kind of like upping the ante. And I suppose Christopher Walken having that Tommy gun is supposed to be upping the ante, but it just doesn't feel like it is especially when these handguns to jordan's point can blow a guy clear across the street utilizing i mean i've heard people call uh walter hill the poor man's sam peckinpah and that 
scene is what really reminds me of the poor man Sam Peckinpah because it's just like, oh, we're using the Wild Bunch slow-mo of this guy flying across the street and then Bruce Willis shooting up everything and then the guy's still flying across. It's like, okay, yeah, you're stretching out time. I understand it. I saw this in 1968. You don't have to do it again right now. It makes me wonder if they decide to remake this again, how are they going to up the ante with the Christopher Walken character, right? Uh, I mean, they go from like a pistol to a Winchester repeater rifle to a machine gun. I guess like next, your, your next villain has to just show up with like a stick of lit dynamite. Wait, are they remaking Last Man Standing? I don't know. After, after, uh, no, I don't. I don't know. I haven't heard that, but I wouldn't be surprised because, like, this has been remade so many times. I mean, we haven't even gotten to, the, to like the sword and sorcery version, like the the warrior and the sorceress, right? Which is a lot of fun. That's a fun movie. Also, I did not like Bruce Willis's voiceover. I thought it took away from the mystery of both Tashira Mifune's character and Clint Eastwood's character. We kind of see his inter- internal motivations when you have that voiceover. It takes away the mystique. It takes away what makes. Yo, Jimbo and the man with no name so cool. And also, he states the really fucking obvious things. Like when the whole, you know, the whole shootout with the two cars, uh, about 25 minutes in, and he says, it was a massacre. I was like, I'll say. <laughs> well, that's the thing. You could tell because, like, like I, I read the script that you supplied for us, Mike, just because I'm, you know, I'm a masochist. And, <laughs> and there's no, there's no voiceover. No, no. And you could tell what happened. I mean, either they did like a Blade Runner kind of thing where they were like, oh, we're afraid our audience will be confused by this. So let's bring in, you know, Bruce Willis to record some voiceover to help, you know, explain some of these plot points, whatever. Or Walter Hill was really wanted to make his version of Red Harvest. And this is his way of paying homage to that by, you know, set in 1920s. And let's have voiceover narration because, you know, Continental Op is it's all in the first person, Red Harvest. But this is the thing. Red Harvest, Yojimbo, and there's a certain sense uh, fistful of dollars. They're funny. They're tongue in cheek. They're satire. Red Harvest is a very funny novel. The dialogue in that is awesome. Last Man Standing is just, the Last Man Standing, it's like, it's like, uh, a teenager just saw an old, you know, film and decided to like take all like the old timey like words he heard and just throw them into this script. Yeah, this, this is not like a Cohen written movie. The the Cohen brothers are masterful at this. Yeah, they give you the high hat. The high hat, don't give me the high hat. Uh hey buddy, what's the rumpus? You know, yeah, it's just it's just beautiful and it sings. That's wonderful. And and in this, it's just oh man, it's just so deadly boring. The characters are really obvious too. It's like it it has the subtle characterization. Like I've seen more subtle characterizations in musicals that I've seen in this movie. Like, the Italians are very Italian. I'm kind of surprised none of them said bada-bing, bada-boom at some point. <laughs> like, the one guy does the one thing with his hand and the chin. And sometimes Christopher Walken is using, I mean, if you could barely hear it through his whispering, sometimes he's using an Irish accent, and sometimes he just can't be bothered. It's, it's, it's really bad. So something that doesn't add up to me, I don't know how much stock I put into IMDb at all, but... One of the trivia things on there is that the original cut of the movie was over two hours long. And you look at the script, and the script is 109 pages. So 109 minutes, right? But then you look at the movie, and you're just like, okay, well, first off, to your point, Eric, we've got this new voiceover that wasn't in the script. But then also you get all of these 
fucked up fades and crossfades and double exposures and stuff where it feels like they're just shortening scenes like crazy. Like, oh, fuck it. I don't want to do a re-edit. Just fade everything out five seconds early or ten seconds early or five minutes early and then maybe throw in some explanatory voiceover to cover up some of these holes. This whole movie just, like, technically, it's a fucking mess. Yeah, it is. It is. I, I call it, I'm calling this the quantum of solace of like man with no name movies. You know, it's like quantum of solace is supposedly the shortest James Bond film, but it feels like the longest, you know, and this film, God, heaven forbid, if there is a two hour plus cut out there, because this film feels too long as it is. And the other thing that we get away from is that holy family that I talked about before. We get away from the three people. Now it just becomes one woman. So then really Bruce Willis could get with this chick at the end of the movie if he wanted to. But yet there's three women in this movie that he could get with if he wanted to. And I have to say, I was so surprised that Leslie Mann was in this movie because I thought I thought she was born when she was 40 years old and started in that This Is 40 movie. Because I don't remember ever seeing her in anything. And I was just like, oh, shit, she's in this? That's kind of crazy. I forgot she was in this. Well, she was in uh, Georgia the Jungle with uh, Brandon Frazier. Yeah, it's not like she didn't exist until she married Judd Apatow. I know, I know. Well, a woman doesn't technically exist until she's married. Isn't that right? That's the odd thing, too. Like, you do have, like, three sort of prominent female characters in this. But the female characters and in, in like you have the one female character in Fistful of Dollars, and you have two fem- you have the female character that the gangster leader in in Yojimbo, far more memorable. They have much more of a presence in those films than they do in Last Man Standing. Because that's the thing, I was like, I I have to like really like remind myself, oh yeah, there's this like one sort of gangster mall character that that uh, Bruce Willis helps leave town, and then. And then there's this other character who's a facsimile of, of, you know, the, the characters being kept prisoner by one of the gang members, you know, to be her, his love slave, whatever. But even she's not that memorable in this. No, no, she's not memorable. And then, frankly, uh, it's a bad choice to have, I think her name is Alexandra Powers as Lucy Kalinsky. Have her and the Leslie Mann character as both blondes and like kind of 1920s blondes that was very confusing yeah i thought they were the same actress that was a missed opportunity for the blonde uh, brunette and redhead trope so many wasted actors in this movie i mean bruce dern is, is so completely wasted william saunderson as the barkeep character and the barkeep character like when i saw joe monday a character named joe monday in the script i was like oh well that's got to be who bruce willis plays and I was like, wait, no, he plays John Smith, which is just the worst. You know, like, do, do that thing. Do the thing where you look around and you go, yeah, my name is Joe Monday. He sees a calendar or something like that, you know? I've been happy if it was like, yeah, the name's Beam, Jim Beam. Something. But yeah, this this movie, and oh, I was saying about Saunderson as the uh, the barkeep. He's looking out the window at one point, and I'm just like, Okay, I'm thinking of Yojimbo in the way that we're being shown things through the windows inside of the, you know, the bar and everything. And there's none of that beautiful framing. I mean, this movie just looks like a mess, too. Yeah, it's, it's just so old. It's, it's tries too hard to be what it wants to be. You know, you're talking about like the scene transitions with the fades and, and, uh, like the, the heavy cinematography, uh, 
it's just it's and it just makes it duller and more slow moving and there's no dynamism to the whole thing and it has no sense of humor at all uh it's just it's just it's it's a lifeless film and all of these characters in this movie can play comedy if they wanted to we've seen every single one of these characters these actors play comedy at one time or another i mean even david patrick kelly for god's sakes we know each one of these characters can do this stuff but they are oh my god are they lifeless in this movie and when christopher walken shows up i ain't scared man i'm just like oh it's him okay i saw his name in the credits in the opening so i knew he would show up at some point and i guess i kind of figured he was going to be the brother yeah way to go this movie this trope like I said at the very beginning, this has been done to death. Uh, and these, what we've talked about so far, have been the official slash unofficial kind of things. But there have been so many movies that play upon this idea. It was really funny. As we are doing this research and watching all these movies and stuff, I get the screener for a movie that won at Slamdance this year. And I sit down, and I'm just like, oh, I really got to watch this before the screener expires. This movie's called Rocksteady Row. And I start watching it, and it's this uh, kid who's coming to college, and he has a bicycle. And he, this frat guy comes up to him, and he's just like, hey, nice bicycle. Ends up stealing his bike, and then it becomes this whole thing that there are two fraternities at this college. And they are at war with one another, and this freshman comes in and basically utilizes the situation yes you know exactly what i'm saying this is another version of yojimbo and it is fantastic so this week as part of the coverage for this movie uh separately i i will have this as a separate episode i'll have an interview with the director trevor stevens and the writer bomani story uh as part of this but yeah that is if you get a chance to see Rocksteady Row, I highly recommend it. Right now, it's tough to see, but eventually it'll come out on streaming digital and DVD and all that stuff. So When you initially describe the premise, it sounded kind of goofy to me. Like it, it sounded like a typical high school movie. Oh, so it's like an intentional comedy then. It is. It is very much a comedy, kind of inspired by Brick a little bit, you know, with that high school setting, but this is a, you know, college, but yeah, it's almost like a post-apocalypse. It's like it Animal House you. meets Yojimbo. That's interesting. I was going to say, I'm glad you brought up Brick, because I love Brick. Oh no, and Brick plays upon those, those old school tropes so well. But yeah, let's talk about some of these other ones. Um, I didn't get a chance to see every single, uh, <laughs> every single version of this, because uh, I'd still be watching movies right now and probably until next year. So I picked out a couple that I really wanted to see. Some I had seen before, some I wanted to see again. So, uh, Eric, I know you are a, a big fan of Warrior and the Sorceress. Journey now to an age undreamed of. An age of mystery and magic. swords and sorcery the warrior and the sorceress on a planet lit by twin suns evil warlords battle to control the fate of an entire dynasty a mighty warrior rises out of legend 
to free an enslaved sorceress. There was a time when I could command. And I would obey. Together, they forged the mystical sword whose blade cannot be broken. The ultimate struggle between good and evil. Sorcery. Dungeons. David Carradine in The Warrior and the Sorceress. The mightiest of all heroes. In the greatest of all adventures. The Warrior and the Sorceress. Their sacred bond cannot be broken. It's it's kind of like it's akin to you know uh, you know Battle Beyond the Stars being a remake of you know Seven Samurai. It's kind of like you can appreciate it on that level. It's it's very cheesy. It's very much you know it, it came about through the you know popularity of the whole you know uh, barbarian movie craze that came after Conan came out right in the eighties. But it's 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 basically it's weird in terms of like how it's plotted. It's pretty faithful to it's it's even more faithful to a fistful of dollars than it is to Yojimbo. Um in terms of but it takes place it's weird, it takes place on another planet. I don't know why. Well so you could they have needed, that awesome uh talking lizard. <laughs> I I don't know why it couldn't just take place at a time long ago, blah blah blah. It didn't have to be so specifically another planet in outer space, because it's not like people are flying around in spaceships or stuff. They're like they're barbarians. You know, they're wearing lion claws and carrying swords and stuff like that. It's a kind of film that would show up late night on cable, you know, it has a lot of like, you know, softcore elements to it. It's weird that like Almost, you know, all the female characters are completely naked throughout the entire film. There's just no covering them up, you know. Uh, and then you have Carradine, you know, Mr. Kung Fu himself playing this sort of man with no name, barbarian type. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those films, uh, you know, have a few shots of whiskey before you watch it. You'll have a good time. I watched one called The Last Round from 1976, uh, which was another Italian film, uh, Il Conto e Chiuso, I think it's how you pronounce it, uh, directed by Stelvio Massi. And I have to say, I really liked that movie. I was very surprised at how much I liked that one. And it was very much a Euro crime type film, but the, uh, I think the the bartender character he like the bartender takes care of this blind girl and so that's a little bit of a different spin on it and they are almost like the holy family and then there's like a rape revenge that happens with the blind girl who is I think supposed to be older than what I thought she was thank goodness um but yeah the the uh bartender character is this homeless guy and he goes around and he like takes bottles from all over the place and then drains them out so he can get like that last drop. So he's all about frugality and stuff. It's really nice. And the way that he and our main character play against each other and the main character, you know, pitting the groups against one another, 
really plays out very well. I highly recommend that. And then interestingly enough, Mario Brega shows up again as one of the, uh, the bad guys. So that was nice to see him show up in this as well. And there's kind of, it's almost, it's like street fighting with a little bit of karate ish type thing. It's 1976. You know, we're all over the map when it comes to our fighting styles. And it's interesting that 1976 is also when, uh, Karate Warriors comes out, which is another Japanese film and that has Sonny Chiba kind of in that yojimbo role and i've only seen parts of karate warriors it was really tough to get through the copy that i had looked like it came off of like a really beat the shit vhs tape so that wasn't good so thank goodness for youtube for something like that yeah i was gonna watch that because i i heard about it i was kind of intrigued by i just said i didn't have any time but i was curious to see how that story would work in a what i guess was a then contemporary context well and then the other one that I really found interesting. I, I went back and I rewatched Django because I remembered there being elements from uh, Fistful of Dollars. And I, obviously, since Fistful of Dollars was such a hit, so many other things are going to take from it. You know, there was even, what, what did I just see? There's a for a few dollars more, but then there's even like another one that's just like for a few extra dollars was the American title of it. Like the Italians were great at recycling stuff and just, you know, re- redoing it so many times that it eventually just ended up like this desiccated corpse. But Django, luckily, was not a desiccated corpse. That was like pretty, you know, on the money when it came to that. And Django is just, it's a fucking classic. But I noticed a lot of elements of that. And then I noticed even more elements of Fistful of Dollars with the film uh, Sukiyaki Western Django that came out a few years ago. Um, which is a incredibly painful movie to watch. It is Takashi Miike. <laughs> I like it, but I, I, I'm not going to like debate your thoughts on that. I will tell you, I like everything about it except for one thing, and I bet you can guess what that one thing is. What's that sound? That's the sound of the Gion Shoja Temple Bells. What? You know, them AK and Genji boys? On a distant island, these two clans split into the Reds and the Whites. Wage war. Sort of like that, uh, War of the Roses. You know, in England? Who won? The Whites? This high noon battle was waged in Dananora, here to Heike clan in red. Got themselves hogtied by the Genji clan in white. Their story goes a little something like this. That is our narrator, who is played by Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino, himself. yeah. Yes. <laughs> There's a reason why Quentin Tarantino is considered a very good director. He's not much of a good actor. I still say his best acting role was in From Dust Till Dawn. I think he acts best when directed by Robert Rodriguez and when he actually has a character to play rather than a guy who shows up at a bar kind of thing. He can't direct himself, and unfortunately, I don't think that Mike could direct him either. So Tarantino as Pringo 
not necessarily the best part. The rest of it, you cut him out, give me a fan edit without Tarantino. I didn't mind that movie at all. I thought it was actually pretty good. I actually, getting back to Django, I like Django a lot, but it's like a, like, it's like a fistful of dollars on steroids. It's, it's like he, they really take the weird and the surreal and put it to 11. It's like, it's not enough that he's a gunslinger. He's carrying around his Gatling gun and a coffin. But what I like about, it, I like Frank O'Nero in it a lot. He's, he's kind of, it's, it's interesting. Like if you take his performance and compare it to like Clint Eastwood, Clint Eastwood is more stoic and, and more, you know, modulated his performance. Whereas Frank O'Nero has a lot of expression, you know, in, in his performance. Um, and it's, it's got like so many more characters in it. I, in fact, if, I can't recall all the characters in it. So I remember just like scenes where there's just like they're just fighting armies of people, you know, a lot in Django, but I'm glad you did a shout out to that. I tried to watch The Stranger. That was tough too. That was tough. And I was kind of intrigued by, I mean, I, it's funny. It's like, oh, you got Yojimbo and you got a fistful of dollars. Let's combine the two. And let's have an American Western character in Japan. But I was kind of intrigued by it because I'm kind of fascinated with Tony Anthony, who stars in it, because he was the guy who made Coming At Ya, which started that like whole 3D craze in the 80s. But that's it. That's all I have to say about that film. Did you get a chance to see When the Raven Flies? And I'm not going to uh, try to pronounce the Icelandic title. No, I didn't get to see that. No. That was interesting, man, because it's like... It's this Icelandic film, but it's set in, I think, Ireland or Scotland, which was kind of a strange thing. So all these guys are just like, yeah, we're in Scotland and they're speaking Icelandic. So, I mean, it kind of makes sense. I imagine that Iceland and Scot Scotland is not that far of a boat ride, but it's a weird mix. It's kind of like, you know, you talked about how the warrior and the sorceress came out post Conan. As I'm watching The Warrior and the Sorceress, I'm just like, man, I wish I was watching Beastmaster right now. I could really go for some fucking Beastmaster. But anyway, um, it's, it's kind of like the, the opening of where, when the Raven flies reminds me of Conan a ton because like these bad guys show up and murder this guy's family, this kid's family. And one of the guys takes a, takes the kid away and he's supposed to kill him. He doesn't put him on the wheel of pain and make him like grow up that way. Instead, he just sends him off like the huntsman from Snow White. But then this guy comes back and he gets revenge on all these people. And so he kind of infiltrates them. It's almost more Red Harvest-esque because of the way that he infiltrates them and sets them against one another and stuff. But he's a badass when it comes to knives, and he's just constantly throwing knives around and stuff. So that was kind of cool. So it, it takes it down from the gunplay that we had in Last Man Standing and takes it down to a little bit more personal, though not as personal as swordplay, I suppose. But I I actually recommend it. It was it was a good one. I'll check it out. I was going to say, getting back to like the cultural influences on something like Yojimbo and its, you know, uh, success of uh, remakes or whatever, you know, a lot, you know, Red Harvest comes up a lot in the conversations, but there's, there's been a lot of like, you know, there's the Friedrich Dermach play, The Visit. It was turned into a movie, uh, but, but that's, that's a story about a woman that returns to her town who was mistreated by this town and she's become wealthy and stuff, but she's going to come back to this town and get revenge on them by having the entire town, you know, basically, Play on, have one town member, you know, pitted against the other. 
and a means of getting revenge on them. And she just steps back and lets them destroy each other. That, that's, that's sort of a variation of the theme. And that play came out before Yojimbo came out. It is said, one, one of Sergio Leone's ways of, of avoiding, trying to avoid the lawsuit was that he said that his uh, film was actually based on a servant of two masters, which is also said to be somewhat influential on Yojimbo as well, which was a, a play written like in the 1700s. It has a similar plot where like a character play, plays, you know, one master against the other kind of thing. Um, so it's not like, you know, yes, we could say, well, you know, it is, is Yojimbo, is it not influenced by Red Harvest? But there was other stuff out there that did a similar thing that could have sort of via osmosis seeped into Kurosawa's brain and he wound up with this thing called Yojimbo. Well, when you talk about that other play with the woman that comes back to town and sets the people against each other, I would say that uh, some of that was also influential on High Plains Drifter with the idea of Clint Eastwood coming back, maybe being his brother, maybe being a ghost, maybe being you know the other sheriff, all these kind of things, and disrupts the town so much because he's he's almost a yojimbo type character in that as well where he comes in is just like yeah give me this give me that i want all this fucking money you know i'm gonna make this uh little person sheriff all this kind of shit just disrupts the entire place yes there are these three bad guys that are coming to town a la high noon but really he makes those people hate each other and fight each other before those bad guys even come to town, it's already hell by the time that those guys come to town. Yeah, in fact, uh, High Plains Drifter could almost be a gender-swapped Western take on the visit. Although, you know, it's not like she's... The implication's definitely not that she had died and she's back from hell to seek revenge. She she's, she's, was this person that was wrong and comes back as a very wealthy woman. And people start sucking up to her because of her money. And she plays on that to get revenge on the town. I don't want to, I don't want to give too much of it away if you want, if you want to read it. It's actually very cool. And it was turned into a movie starring Ingrid Bergman and Anthony Quinn. It sounds very kind of Monte Cristo. It's kind of Monte Cristo, but it, but it's more, it's, it's like kind of Monte Cristo. It's like, I'm going to go there and I'm going to get revenge and I'm going to, you know, get this guy arrested and do this. It's kind of like that, but it's also, it, it, it's, uh, uh, what, what was that? If it was a dogville that was directed by Lars von Trier. It, that has that. It's more like that than it is something like High Plains Drifter or Count of Monte Cristo. But you check it out. So I would be completely remiss if I didn't mention this movie because this was co-scripted by someone that we've had on the show before, Ed Naha, who was on the Dune episode, and it was directed and co-scripted by someone that that we've had on the show multiple times, which is our good friend Albert Pune. And that is Omega Doom, which is a post-apocalyptic version of Yojimbo with Rutger Hauer in the Yojimbo role. So not only did he play a version of Zatoichi in Blind Fury, but he also played a version of Yojimbo in Omega Doom. So yeah, that is, it's, it's very interesting, but, uh, it's an Albert Pune film. So if you understand what I'm saying there, then knock yourself out. It doesn't acknowledge Yojimbo in the opening credits or anything, but it's, you know, obviously Yojimbo. So it's just like, okay, well, this is kind of a nice post-apocalyptic take on it. So it's, it's not as good as Fistful of Dollars, let's just put it that way. But it is better than Last Man Standing. But I would say of all the movies that we've talked about, The Last Round, Warrior and the Sorceress, 
where the crow flies or when the raven flies, all of these things. I would say, and I this is not me just slagging on Walter Hill. I would say each one of those is better than Last Man Standing because it just really leaves me wanting. It's just such a, a poorly done thing. It's really depressing because I, I like Walter Hill for the most part. You know, I think this was like one of those films that was like he had been out of the scene for a while. And this was supposed to be like his big comeback film or something like that. And it's just it's just not there. There's always people who are just like, oh, well, you forgot to talk about this. You forgot to talk about that. Da, 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 da. Yeah, I th- there's no way we're not just going to sit here and list off movies that were inspired by your Jimbo. So I'm sorry. Um, just you're, you're just going to have to handle that. And somebody out there probably has made a list. I was not made aware of that list, but there's probably a list out there somewhere. If you go out into certain sites and you just type in Yojimbo or Fistful of Dollars, you're going to come up with a ton of movies. There are so many things that are just like, oh yeah, well, uh, I don't know, Hunter in the Dark, that's got some similarities and blah, 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 blah. But so yeah, knock yourself out. If you want to be that guy, Go ahead, be that guy. So, or you can just take your money and give it to the remake of The Last Jedi, and we can all be happy. I figure the same people that nitpick on that stuff are also the ones that think that Star Wars has gotten too feminine now. Let's get a female-driven remake of Yojimbo. That'd be awesome. Why not? Yeah, they can do Ocean's 8. They can do Yojimbo Femme or something. All right, we are going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Presenting Patrick McGowan in his most harrowing role since The Prisoner. No! 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 A prisoner again. My name is Lucas Miller, and I intend to hold a public retrial of a man who was wrongly convicted. No! A radio personality held to ransom. And this place is soundproof. Federal squad, and I want them here now. I want them on the way right now. A trial by ordeal live on the airwaves. Hello. Hello. His program used in a desperate attempt to release a political prisoner. <laughs> God damn it, Henry. Where would we be if every time some punk grabs a hostage, we cave in? The uh, shotgun is pointed at my belly and at my wife and child in a room adjacent to 20 pounds of jelly knife. So would you be kind enough, sir, to clear the air? Guilty. Guilty. Satisfied? Satisfied. Calm down. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Alexis Tanner's Kings and Desperate Men. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Jordan and Eric. Jordan, what has been keeping you busy lately? I've been uh, drawing, uh, hand lettering, and uh, just uh, tweeting about movies on Twitter. Like I, I don't stop talking about movies after we're done recording. 
like every other tweet is about some movie, usually some older movie, at least 20 years older. So, yeah, I never shut up about movies. (laughs) Who likes old movies? That's so gross. (laughs) That's so boring. Movies that are 20 years or older. And then I think to myself, fuck, that's like 1998. Oh, my God. At least. That's a conservative estimate. I don't know. If you went on YouTube, you would think that... Have you have you seen some of these like YouTube pop culture shows? You would think movies didn't exist before Star Wars. Well, and I can think of at least three movies that happened before Star Wars. And Eric, what is the haps with you these days? Ah, oh, God. Well, I'm busy doing my work thing, doing a lot of like video editing, emotion graphic design. I'm actually in the process of developing a project, and I'm not sure where it's going to take me yet. But it's a little different from what I've what I'm known for doing in the past. Let's just say it won't have anything to do with movies. It'll be my little sort of, uh, the same way I approach the cinephiles, I'll be approaching the way our current news media environment is handling current events. And that's all I'm going to say. Thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show and to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Donors also give me the warm fuzzies. I have to tell you that. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. No, Jimbo!